How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 153. It's like you said, Zeke, we're coming up on our anniversary. Yes, I'm actually wearing the shirt. Oh, you are. If, um, Cinema Sideshow. Cinema Sideshow shirt Podcast. Right now. Um, shirt. It was always one of the, I remember <laughs> when I gave it to you, I was like, oh man, this is actually probably be like sellable. It's like, then you got to mm. go through like the whole like trying to arrange like a store and all that stuff. So there's only two of these printed. Yeah, in two history. in the world. It's very rare. It's a very rare shirt. They're worth eight thousand dollars each. So if anyone wants to pay us sixteen thousand dollars, we'll take it. You just like, print more shirts. Like, it's like fine. Fund our show for like the rest of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't uh, take a whole lot to fund the show. No. Well, we don't. We don't like sit there, penny counting, being like, how much did the French Dispatch cost to see in a cinema? You know, we don't like keep track of that. We have a an annual bill. Yeah. That we. Lately, we've just been splitting in the middle. Yeah. We used to bounce back and forth like tennis. Yes. And then we was like, I'll just split it. And then, yeah, there are other... We, we don't think about any of the other costs of operations. I don't no. give you my electricity bill for my <laughs> my computers. <laughs> we got to get a spreadsheet. That'll be, our, that'll be what we promise in yeah. the next year. We're, we're probably actually going to be upset by how little it costs to make this show. <laughs> probably very true. Even uh, how much we make off it. <laughs> Yeah, we don't need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, Jake? Yeah, I'm good. I'm Christmas is coming. It is. This is exciting, but you know, you get busy. It's the first, this might be the first Christmas ever that I'm kind of like just working through. Mm-hmm. Which is it's fine. Yeah, it it, but... it has it has been a very long 2021. So mm. it's it's sort of interesting to be coming up on the third um ever uh third end of year awards yes. and on top of that um, yeah, just like coming up on Christmas, you know, it's crazy to think we've almost gone through 52 weeks of this show since the last, since, yeah, since the last award show. So, yeah, we did Ma Rainey and that, that was the one we did. That was actually the film we did that week was Ma Rainey. The awards. Yeah. It was, that's actually quite funny. But so, then, yeah. Lots changed. Lots yeah. changed over that, over that 12 months. Uh, so but before we get into that, that's of a couple course. of weeks away. We've still of got course. a few more to get through. Jake, <laughs> do you have any trivia for the film that we're talking about later in the show? I do. So I have trivia for mm-hmm. the fifth millionth Spider-Man film to Is come it? out of course, Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, only the fourth millionth to be involved in the MCU. So that's pretty yes, good. That's, yeah. that's very true. Of course. Um, so my... Speaking of the MCU, actually, that's perfect. That segues right into my fact... Wanted to talk about the other solo trilogies in the MCU, which we have a few now. You have like Captain America, Thor, Iron Man. They all have their own trilogies outside of their appearances in Avengers and all of those other things. Uh, but what's interesting is that all out of all those trilogies, including this new one that's now completed with No Way Home, the Spider-Man MCU trilogy, this is the only one to have the same director through the whole thing. In John Watts. That's pretty crazy. Which is crazy, because, yeah, Captain America, Iron Man 4, they all had... Mm. Actually, I think they had the same director for at least two out of three of those. Yes. Of course, Taika Waititi went on to do the third for... um, Was it Shane Black who did the third Iron Man? And then Captain America was reversed, where the Russos did two and three, but they didn't Mm. do the first. Yes. Um, But then, of course, John Watts did all... Three of these. Yeah, and then Favreau, I think, only did one and two, right? For Iron yes, Man. Yes, so. for Iron Man, and I, God, I cannot remember who directed the other films. The first Captain America and the 
first and second form. Which is but... really interesting with, with, with John Watts because looking at his mm. uh, you know, letterbox profile, his uh, resume, if you will. <laughs> his uh, resume is now um, his letterbox profile. Not much going on. I mean, you're right, you're right but yeah. yeah. yeah it's not, much, not much going on outside of these Spider-Man films. Uh, a couple of horror films. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much it. The record will be beaten, though, if Peyton Reed does his third Ant-Man film, which will happen, is locked in to happen, I should say. Okay. Then he'll be the only other one to have done all three of his films. And the big question is, will mm. John Walks pick up the next Spider-Man film? Apparently he's doing Fantastic Four. There you go. I didn't realise that, but so that is a good question, and we definitely will get to that. But Zeke, yeah. what is your fun fact for the show? Yeah, so obviously this film features a lot of cameos. Yes, um, so I've heard. From previous films. We're not going to jump into spoilers. I, I can only assume that most of our review in the second half of the show is going to be spoiler-filled. There's not really much you can do. Um, <laughs> There's prior. not much you can say before um, spoiler discussions. But one of the confirmed appearances prior to, obviously, the film coming out was uh, Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin um, reprising its role. And I do find this quite funny because... He rocked up to the premiere with his Green Goblin mask, which is nice, I think. Yeah, Um, that is nice. You know, he's probably one of the MVPs of of the film, so, um, but we'll jump into that in the second half of the film. But Jake, I'm going to throw you the question this time. Obviously, this film is not on the 1100 films to watch poster behind me. Yes. Do you think it should make that poster? Um, look, I think without jumping too much into our discussion of the film, I think the, sp- the film is very special in a lot of ways. But no, I wouldn't put it on my 1100 films to watch. I think those films have to be special for very self-contained reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think this fits that criteria exactly. But uh, would you put it on your poster, Zeke? Nah, not for me. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> probably very similar consensus to you, but... Um... This film obviously could be juxtaposed a lot with our review last week of the French Dispatch mm. and sort of the amalgamation of, I guess in that case, it was the amalgamation of one director's uh, filmology, I guess. Filmology, yeah. whereas this is a collection of multiple universes collab- mm. collaborating on in one space. And that can be rewarding in one sense, but from a filmic point of view, it it's not, in my opinion, something you really need to touch on. There are many other Spider-Man films that would probably be more likely to reach that list. I yeah. I feel like if, if you do like an 1,100 pieces of Spider-Man related media, then yeah, sure, it'll make that list. <laughs> but films. 1,100 films. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a specific criteria. It doesn't make it for that. But I do want to ask, like, I just did check, of course. I wanted to see if any of the other Spider-Man films have made that list. Most of them would be eligible. Those, of course, that came out before 2018. So do you think any of them are, and if so, which ones are on the list? I'm going to say no to any of them. Okay. Um, simply because, and if I was to pick one, it would probably be Raimi's first Spider-Man film. Mm, okay. Um, so just Spider-Man. Um, but other than that, no. I think that, that, to be honest, it's like, the, obviously that poster goes up to, I believe, 2018. Yeah. I think there are other superhero films that would make the cut. Mm. that would push out the oversaturation of superhero films that we have gotten since, really, Raimi's first Spider-Man yeah, film. Yeah, exactly. Sort of one that helmed it along with like Blade yeah. and X-Men and those kinds of films. For sure. Late 90s, early 2000s. I will say, 
Uh, you were wrong and you were correct at the same time because indeed the only one on there is the 2002 Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Well, there you go. So uh, if you were to have guessed, you would have guessed correctly okay. in that sense. So there you go. Yeah. Very nice. I, I'm, yeah, I think that's a perfectly fine. Like, uh, homage of respect mm-hmm. to Sam Raimi and the Spider-Man films. Just put the first one there. You're good. I agree. Yeah, fair enough. But before we jump into what is probably going to be a heavily unpacked second half of the show, mm. I imagine. Heavily. Jake, what have you watched in the last week? Um, I watched a few bits and pieces of things here and there, so I'll, I'll sort of rattle for it pretty quickly, because like you're right, we got we got a lot to get into. Yeah. So I can get through these quickly. Of course, third season finished last week of Succession. I actually watched it with a couple of friends immediately after recording last week's episode. It was quite the rush. Yeah, we hit the the stop button on our like an hour fifty five podcast, and we bolted. Um, but yeah, no, I thought it was excellent. I obviously am not going to sit here and talk about the season three finale to Succession and spoil it. People like yourself who haven't seen it or know what what's in the story, but mm-hmm. I I do want to say I do appreciate the show's ability to trick you into thinking that it's going to deviate away from two almost laws at this point in regards to the story. And how the story should play. Because there's really two sense of tension. There's the tension that threatens the actual business side. The actual family business of Waystar, Royco. Um, in regards to, you know, shareholders pulling out. And hostile takeovers. And, you know, scandals with the DOJ and the FBI. coming Like, all of those sort of businessy things that have threatened the actual company's existence. That those all just get sorted. That... It's sort of this unwritten thing that, ah, like all of those problems, they're not actually going to amount to anything. They're mm. just going to solve themselves. It's about the character drama and the reactions to those things happening. But then you have those second set of states, the interpersonal family drama. Who's going to be the real successor? Who's going to take over? And all of those things. And I love that the show is constantly, constantly tricking you into thinking things could get shifted. Dynamics can change. But at the end of the day, Logan wins. Logan always wins. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. But the show is very good at convincing that it's not going to happen. And then every finale is like, yeah, it kind of happens still. But no, great show. I recommend it. Speaking of HBO, I finally started watching Sharp Objects. Okay. series with uh, Amy Adams, of course. Cool. Do you want to um, give me a general consensus? Or, sorry, general synopsis? I can give you both, Zeke. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, so it's actually very similar to The Dry, narratively. It's about, um, well, in this case, Amy Adams is a journalist who goes back to her, her hometown. It's a bit of a, you know, a small town. You know, some would call it a hick place maybe, but mm. it's like she's not particularly proud of having come from there and is not happy about going back, but she's drawn there to report on a series of murders that have happened. Now, I've only seen the pilot episode. I've only seen the first. I think there were eight. I'm very excited to watch the rest of it. It's also based on the novel by, I guess, Gillian Flynn or Gillian Flynn, um, who, of course, she wrote Gone Girl and actually did the screenplay for Gone Girl. So she bounces back and forth between novel and screenplay and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a few of these episodes. I'm not sure which ones, uh, but I want to give her a shout out as well because it is her original story. And yeah, I like it a lot. Um, I think it's very gritty and very intriguing from that sense. Like, I'm involved in the mystery. It's got um, Eliza Scanlon in it, who, of course, I'm very excited mm. to see more of her. This was very early for her. This is pre-Little Women, pre-Baby Teeth, pre-Old, uh, pre-Devil All the Time. So um, it's exciting to see her in that position, which is cool. Is it? Yeah, it is pre-Little Women. I think this is a 2018 series. And I'm excited to see more. I think 
the thing I particularly liked was Amy Adams's character, and that there's not a lot of you know expositional dialogue or anything like that. There is a little bit to explain you know where she comes from and um, a bit of a backstory, but it's all uh, it's all told through flashbacks and it's all told through very subtle, I guess, characterizations. You know, it's the mm. way that she would unpack her bag, or sorry, the way she would pack her bag to you know travel back to her hometown or. Um, the way she would use her phone while driving, or just little like characterizations like that 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 tell you, you know, she's tough as nails, but she is lonely. Um, she, yeah, but those are the two. Those are the two best aspects to put her. She's tough as nails, but she is lonely. And I was specifically told to look at two things with the show: um, the way it deals with nighttime driving sequences, how it's shot specifically, um, and how they use flashbacks or how they transition between the present day and flashbacks and i think particularly with that that ladder it's cool to see sort of the 13 reasons why approach which is probably one of the only good things about that show in its entirety it has really clever transitions between flashbacks and present day mm. and all that well with, predominantly mm. just in its earlier seasons yeah well yeah. i mean they, they are present they are throughout but you're right the earlier seasons have a lot more of them and a lot more inventive um, transitions but yeah even just the way she will open a door and the shot reversal leads to a new room um, seeing a moth sort of trapped into a wall and then the sound of that takes you into the, the forest from decades earlier just very l- clever little things like that that are mostly done through simple editing tricks or blocking where you have like the older version of a character and the younger version sort of cross over each other um, mm-hmm. in camera but then that is the transition to the present day and very clever things like that that didn't require expensive visual effects to be overly fancy. So I really appreciated a lot of that. Again, this is just the first episode, but I'm excited to watch the rest. And if I have more to say, I will mention it uh, next week. Now, I did rewatch something, but I will talk about that. I rewatched Far From Home, the previous Spider-Man film that caused it leads into the film of the week. I'll, I'll wait. We'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, Zeke, cool. Tell me what you've been watching. So I'll just start off, kick off with a series and move into films that mm. I've watched in the last week. Nice. So much like you, t- starting with uh, you know Sharp Objects, um, that series. I just this morning started the Witches um, nice. Netflix series. Um, obviously, season two was released, I believe, in the last week. Very recently, yeah. very recently. I might have dropped last week. Week. Oh, week. we mentioned that, didn't yes. we? Yeah. Um, and um, has a lot of buzz around it. It's actually probably one of the few you know we've talked about on this show how video game properties just don't get their just desserts. Um, and this seems to be one of the very rare examples of a video game property that seems to be, le- you know, actually have a positive response from its uh, community mm. that it's servicing. Um, you know, I, I did talk about it. it was, you know, it's such a shame that Cowboy Bebop's not being renewed for a second season, but that has been led, you know, it has that real divisive animosity from the original source material versus uh, those who watched the live action, although it definitely felt like a labour of love to me. Um, I finished that in the last week and didn't have anything really that bad to say about it. So, But back to The Witcher, I definitely enjoyed it. Watched the first two episodes this morning. Um, I like Henry Cavill. He's great. Mm. He's... uh, um, It is interesting seeing him in a role where he's not kind of that clean-cut-looking sort of Superman-esque character. Right, yeah. It's a bit dirtier, grittier. Yeah, with long hair. I haven't seen. (laughs) So, um, definitely like it. Been enjoying it. It's nice to have a bit of fantasy, you know, fantasy fiction sort of stuff. So that's that's been a bit of fun. Just been continuing my run with Superstore. I'm coming up to season four now, and I didn't realize it was so much of Superstore. Five five seasons. Crazy. Um, uh, 
definitely th- it hasn't like lost steam but it like i've said in other weeks of the show it, it hits a very good solid b grade it doesn't do anything too ambitious or thought-provoking or illicit responses that aren't out of the sitcom norm mm. it, it very much goes in there being like the the prime goal of this is to make you laugh sort of how i feel about brooklyn 99 very similar yeah for sure so, sort of consensus where it's more about the jokes rather than the feels mm. like other sitcoms do but over to the films so obviously yes. starting with you know we obviously recorded on a monday released our episode on a monday talked about french dispatch led to three consecutive days that would follow that. So the first four days of last week, I went to the cinema every day. Hey, very um, nice. Jake approves. Jake approves, <laughs> yeah. So definitely this is uh, kind of crazy going from my dry spell to being like, I have four films to talk about. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so obviously, you know, watch last week's, listen to last week's show if you want to hear about my French Dispatch thoughts or both our thoughts. Yeah, of course. Um, I then moved into Tuesday and finished off the Daniel Craig Bond trilogy with the 25th Bond film, No nice. Time to Die. Um, I well, went, well so, trilogy, it's, what is what, five or six? Five. Iter- five. Five films. Five iterations, cool. So you've uh, seen all of them. Seen all of them. Cool. Um, they're the only five I've seen from, from Bond films. So and this is the 25th overall Bond film. Um, I went and saw this with my mother. And, nice. Um, I did not mind the film. My mum hated the film. Oh, so, wow. Um, my, one of my, I'll call him a friend. He's also my employer and sends me money all the time, which is nice. He saw it this past weekend and he was very, it's okay. Yeah. So the same thing. I'm a big fan of, this film definitely feels like it is um, the, sort of the amalgamation of the, so actually I, I have my, my, my major problems with this film. Uh, I think Rami Malek's villain mm. is very weak. It's okay. probably the second weakest villain out of his five films, the yep. antagonist films. Um, it's got nothing on like Javier Bardem's one from Skyfall or even Mads Mikkelsen from Casino Royale. Mm, yep. um, Strong castings all throughout. And, and Christoph Waltz, even in Spectre, although I think this film's a better film than Spectre. I think Waltz is a better villain. So right. um, this definitely, this film felt like, it definitely felt like they wanted Spectre to be his last. They didn't know that was going to be his last film. And so it has that level of conclusiveness to it, but because they were like, oh, we're going to do a 25th film, and then they brought Craig back to the role, it sort of felt like it almost felt tacked on, and that really comes across with Malik's villain is the the real key sort of um, problem that points, blaring problem that points that out. Um, the first act is probably the strongest. Um, mm. We get to see a glimpse of what I hope is the future. We get to see Anna, Anna Diamas Ooh, come on board. So a bit yes. of a Knives Out reunion party. <laughs> yes, uh, too. Um, <laughs> I always forget that. Fantastic. And they get to work alongside each other, which is great. Uh, yeah, Jeffrey sweet. Wright has a small, brief, fun stint in there. Um, it's lo- I'm loving He's just the appearing ge- everywhere. I'm loving the Jeffrey. My goodness, give me a more Jeffrey Wright love. Let's yeah. do it. Let's give him his give him his hard work in this last last five years for him. Yeah, my I'm goodness. Um, so he has a great um, part in this. Um, but overall, yeah, and obviously um, Leia Sado is in this too. So mm. quite a few French Dispatch uh, returns. Yeah, um, and <laughs> that's great. So it was interesting, uh, but overall the film was fine. The ending's kind of hokey cheesy, but also kind of appropriate. Like I think people forget, like it is James Bond. Let's. Mm-hmm. It's not like I think the problem with things like Skyfall is they make it feel a little bit more Dark Knight risey. 
or Dark Knight-esque, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Where it's like the Nolan shift in the Batman tone has now led to, let's be real, this new Batman film still kind of keeping in that realm and then even the, the DCU films with Affleck, they tried to keep that darker tone. So it's definitely changed the way that we view that sort yeah. of thing. And I think these Bond films, this is the first one that kind of brought back a little bit more of that hokey sort of cheesy spy stuff. That's and cool. That's I cool. Like, I like that, yeah. Um, it's not taking itself as seriously in parts, but then it's really serious in other parts. So it, it has a bit of a problem there. Um, it's too long. It's way too long. Mm. It's two hours it's, 40 yeah, and you yeah. feel it. You okay. feel it. Like, you know, we're talking about... I. We talked about in Dune how it was didn't feel it felt epic and you were kind of exhausted by the end in the sense that you went on this epic journey. Yeah. But you didn't feel like you could take anything out of that film, really. Like right. everything it, needed it to didn't be there. drag in that sense. I'm sure if it did for some people, but yeah. I thought the pacing was perfectly fine. This in film has so many of those like almost feels like advert you know, joke and we're gonna joke I'm gonna make a joke in the film of the week about advertisement shots, but there were some really bad <laughs> I, ones. I know the, what you're talking about. There's some really bad ones of <laughs> the Bond one too, where it's like they're showing off this Aston Martin model when he's getting out of the car looking Bond esque and it takes like two minutes for him to because you really want to milk yeah. the, the car and I'm like, okay. I see a lot of things with um Anna Diomis is like the dress she wears. Yeah. I think that that was very much like a company put money in so she would wear that dress for the film and which is great in her thing. part too. Like, yeah. I definitely think that there are, and I'm not saying Malik's performance is poor. It's just, it's, it's he's such a tacked on, put together at the last minute antagonist because they thought Christoph Waltz was going to be the last big one, right? Um, so it's anticlimactic in comparison. Unfortunately, yeah. Um, I think he does the best with what he's got, but yeah. Look, uh, best I could give you is it, it finishes. If I was to rank the five Craig films, it would finish third. Yeah. With one and two being significantly better. And four and five being significantly worse. This sits mm. seldom in the middle. Interesting. Okay. Um, that's, I think that's fine. Yeah. That's fair praise. So, <laughs> praise. Uh, then I move into my Wednesday where yes. I actually went to... So, obviously, Jake and I were relatively based close together from the university. We both did our undergraduate degrees at. Mm. Um, Usually, we wave a flag up on the roof when we want to <laughs> call each other's attention. <laughs> Send smoke signals. <laughs> <laughs> um so I went to the, uh, the we obviously have a, a telethon outdoor cinema that mm, runs yes. from mid-November to mid-April. For some reason, never gone to it, ever. For some reason, myself. You have gone to it. I've gone to it once for, for Damien's film. Yeah. But that was, that was I, would, I wasn't going for like the outdoor experience. I actually don't really like the outdoor experience. Really? No, because it's, it's cold. It's nighttime. There's a football <laughs> field next door usually. It's... Mozzies, I'm. I just. It's very rare that I enjoy the outdoor experience. Very fair. You are so, quite allergic to mosquitoes, though. I am. I am allergic to mosquitoes, so, so and mozzies and all that jazz. So which is why I thought I was allergic to bees for so long, but then I got stung by a bee and I was fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the it's park. Crazy. I'm got put stunned. I was, Someone I was help today me. Years old when I figured out. Um, <laughs> so, um, basically, well, I've always wanted to do it. Never okay. done it. Yeah. And. Went to go see uh, a Christmas film, so that ties into our pseudo-Christmas show. I know this isn't the Christmas show, but yes. it's in the week of. Um, went to It's a Wonderful Life. Nice. Um, Very nice. And that was really, like, really great night. Really great experience. I liked the cinema. It was nice. Great atmosphere. And to tick off, you know, watching a 1940s film in an outdoor cinema setting, that's pretty... You know, uh, if a movie cliche I've always wanted to tick off my bucket list, Jake. <laughs> um, 
but obviously it was a great it was honestly it's probably one of the quintessential christmas films you know it stars james stewart it's yep. directed by frank capra who's a prominent director of the 30s and 40s um and really by the end of the film it's you know it definitely has a great start has a great premise and has things that are obviously of the time like it's got very heavy christian overtones in it which you know mm. It's just product of the time sort of stuff. But the message well, I mean, stays the same. Well, I mean, it is Christmas still. Yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> it is true. Um, but yeah. Um, obviously, yeah, a great performance from James Stewart. Relatively young James Stewart, um, about 10 years before Rear Window, which we did on yep. the show. Yep. Um, and yeah, it was just a fantastic film with a really heartwarming ending. So, um, Very with beautiful. It sort of had like some uh, Back to the Future time travel logic going on too, which was fun. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Alternate timeline sort of stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah I got to preface I haven't seen it before, but that's very interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So, would recommend it if you've never seen it before and you need a Christmas film. It's it's wonderful. There you go. I will, I will preface that if the audience has been hearing crows yelling in the background of our audio, that's how I feel at the outdoor cinema experience. <laughs> Well, Does the it one not disrupt the, one, the experience the one, audience? I would have to admit, where the one, the Murdoch <laughs> one is, it's in a nice enclosed space, so yeah, you don't cool. get a lot of that uh, noise or footballs being kicked and stuff like that. Yeah, and cool. For the most part, you'll get a couple of loud uh, people are a little louder, or maybe you have some toddlers running around, which we did have now uh, right, screening experience. So, um, yeah, would a hundred percent go and check that one out? Yeah, um, you know, what? I wouldn't mind it if I if I have already seen the film before. Yeah, I reckon and, that's and the best part about these yeah. outdoor screenings is some of these older films are actually free. Yeah, oh, too. sweet. There so you go, perfect. To go see this. So, looking for something to do over the holiday break, would recommend. Very nice. Um, and then the last film was obviously the film of the week. So, I watched four consecutive cinematic experiences. But we'll talk about that one in the second half of the show. Nice. I like the sound of that. Well, I want to pitch to you, Zeke. We did it last week. I suggest we do it again. Sure. We omit the career section for now. Focus on awards talks because, of course, you know, we talked about a couple of things last week. And as we were recording, literally, I didn't realize this as we were recording and uploading last week, the Golden Globe announcements came through, which I was like, oh, is, is that early? I, I guess not. All right. They're out there. Beautiful. As well as the Critics' Choice Awards. Oh, baby. I'll actually, I'll go through those both in a second, but I really want to quickly read because the uh, National Film Registry has its 2021 entries submitted. So for those who don't know, this is sort of the American, um, I guess, the, the, the keepsake. It's the uh, archival thing where they, they select 25 films a year that are pristine, that are very important to the American film culture. And I guess, um, well, I wouldn't say zeitgeist because a lot of them are older films. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's about preservation and keeping those films in. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to read just some of the entries for this year since it just came out. Uh, I think the big meme last year was that Shrek was selected, which I think is perfectly fine. I like that. Uh, so some of the films that were selected this year include A Nightmare on Elm Street, which, of course, we did only a few weeks ago, not too long ago. Uh, Requiem 29, Pink Flamingos, The Murder of Fred Hampton. We did a... Uh, what's it called? Oh, how am I thinking the name of the movie? Judas and the Black Messiah. Yes. We did that uh, about a year, a little under a year ago. So there you go. That ties into that, I believe. Uh, the Long Goodbye, Hellbound Train, The Flying Ace, Evergreen, uh, Collie High, Evergreen... Uh, Selena, and some of the other ones I wanted to mention, Wally, which I think that's a great selection. I think that is a pinnacle selection we should absolutely yeah. have. That must be, I'm not sure. So there is a cutoff year slash date. Mm. 
Mm. As in, the film can't be... They can't pick Black Panther. Yeah. yeah there, there needs to be a certain amount of time removed from it. I don't know if Wally is, like, the one that, like, is on the edge, because that's only, what, 2008? So... Yeah, so maybe it's 15, 10 years, maybe? It might be 10 years. Yeah, because it can't be 15. Yeah. Might be a 10-year cutoff. There's a little bit of a cutoff there, which I wanted to, to mention. Um, but, yeah, I want to give a shout-out Wally. And I'm really surprised about Nightmare on Elm Street. I think it's awesome. And the, uh, the last one is episode six return of the jedi okay that's good which i'm a little surprised it took this long for it to get in there mm. and we'll see if george lucas actually decides to give him the original negative because <laughs> 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 they did it for a new hope and he did not want to give it away in fact i still think he hasn't sent it this is a request it's not like they send the fbi and kick the doors down take the film <laughs> negatives it's ours now it's, it's yeah <laughs> we're gonna delete all the other versions um, I can understand the yeah. reason, like, not wanting to give it up if it's, like, the film. like. Well, the idea is it, it's because of the visual effects bloody yeah. remakes that he's done, or the, the remasters. Because it, they're just they're putting it away for storage for, mm. for archival purposes. So it's not like... God, you'd hope nothing bad would happen to this archive. And the, the archive gets burnt. <laughs> Every film they select gets burnt. <laughs> That's actually really bad. You put all the sacred things in yeah. one place. Yeah. <laughs> but I hope it's secure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. That's so good. Anyway, that's why I wanted to give those uh, a shout-out for some great picks in there. So the 79th Golden Globe Award nominations. I, actually, I love the way Wikipedia does it because it really splits it up by category mm-hmm. in a really clear, um, concise way. But uh, if we look in the comedy or musical section, you have films like Don't Look Up, Licorice Pizza, interesting enough. West Side yep. Story, Tick, Tick, Boom. It's like you're saying, a lot of these uh, musicals are sneaking in mm-hmm. now because of that, which I think is interesting. In terms of actors, you have Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, which I think that... Is that... No, I think that's out. That's out in cinemas now and then on Netflix, uh, New Year's Eve. Lady Gaga for House of Gucci. Nicole Kidman for being uh, The Ricardos, which we'll talk about later in the show. Uh, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer and Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, in terms of actress, this one surprised me. Uh, Marion Cotillard for Annette. Very surprising. And only her. No other nominations for the film. No Adam Driver, no nothing. Okay. So interesting pick. But I'll take it. Uh, Alana Ham for uh, Licorice Pizza. Very exciting. Jennifer Lawrence for Don't Look Up, which that also comes very soon to Netflix. Emma Stone as Coella. And uh, Rachel's Ziegler, Rachel Ziegler for West Side Story. Um, again, the uh, only the female in that duo is uh, getting nominated. That one's a little more obvious why. Yes, <laughs> someone's yes. being cancelled over there. Oh goodness, um, getting seriously cancelled. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's move over to screenplay for now. So Paul Thomas Anderson's for the Grish Pizza, Kenneth Baranak uh, for Belfast, Jane Camp- uh, Campion for The Power of the Dog. Adam McKay for Don't Look Up and Aaron Sorkin for being the Ricardos. Uh, best original song. You've got this, uh, some songs from Encanto. Uh, Billy Eilish for No Time to Die. So did you what did you rate the song yeah. at all? Yeah. yeah. I rated the song when it came out. It yeah, it came out ages ago, yeah. Um, I would say it's probably my second favourite out of the five films. Yeah, cool. Um, it's hard to beat the Devil's Skyfall, though. Oh, yeah. It just yeah. takes it to another level. And I like Sam Smith's one, too. Oh, like, yeah. He's a good one. For Writing on the Wall. But... Hers, I liked her, her song. Oh, I reckon it's got a good chance of winning. So that's fair enough. Um, best original score, you have French Dispatch, Dune, Power of the Dog, and Canton. Parallel Mothers. 
don't know what Parallel Mothers is, but I would... You know what? I'm going to just say this. I would give it to French Dispatch over Dune. Personally, I would. <laughs> I know that's not going to happen, though. No. <laughs> Dune's going to win. Uh, for Best Animated Feature, you have Encanto, Flea, Luca, My Sunny Mad, and Raya and the Last Dragon. Please don't let Luca win. That's all I want out of this. I'm hearing Encanto is good, but Flea also is like... That's meant to be a documentary as well as an animated film. Just mm. like, is it Tower? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah. yeah. An animated documentary, yeah. That's a cool one. Uh, best foreign film, you have a compartment number six, Drive My Car, The Hand of God, which is now out on Netflix, A Hero, and Parallel Mothers. Okay, so Parallel Mothers is a Spanian film. So there you go. Best director for Belfast, Power of the Dog, Maggie Gyllenhaal, wow, for The Lost Daughter, West Side Story, of course, for Spielberg, and Dune. Denis Villeneuve. Very exciting. And now I'm just sort of going... I've went, like, down from the right side, and now I'm going back up from the dramatic side uh, in terms of performances. So you do have Leonardo DiCaprio for Don't Look Up, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, Cooper Hoffman for Licorice Pizza. Uh, these are supporting roles, I should mention. Uh, Mahershala Ali for Swan Song, which we're going to mention again later in this show. Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog. How do you rate that one? Since you've seen Power of the Dog. I'd put him up there, yeah. yeah. He's a great performance. Beautiful. And as a dramatic actor, of mm. course. Um, also, Will Smith for Ken Richard, uh, Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Big Beth, which we are also going to be talking about. That there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff coming out. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a couple of weeks for the the final push. Exactly. And for best motion picture drama, we have Belfast, Coda, Dune, King Richard, Power of the Dog. So I've I've seen two of those. I liked Coda, but again, I'll re- reiterate. I was I was hoping it would be a little less Disney Channel sweetness mm-hmm. and a bit more sort of sound metal-esque in terms of gritty yeah. darker fiends but it's cool what's on here i guess and dune's dune so it's great i don't know if i necessarily win but um so you've seen dune and power of the dog out of those five mm-hmm. would you give it to dune or power of the dog that's a good question actually i'd probably give it to dune i think i huh? enjoyed dune okay. more cool yeah dune's like like I said, like on on the review for that show, it's the first time I felt like that Lord of the Rings sort of epicness buzz mm. since Lord of the Rings. Right, in terms um, of a theatrical experience and the yeah. story sort of coming at you, and like it was epic. Yeah. Like, and I think that that has to be noted because I don't think he, any of the new Star Wars films achieved that. The Hobbit films didn't achieve that. Yeah. Like, yep. For me, none of the MCU films have achieved that level mm. of like this is a different sort of epicness. Something that I think that we've lot like. And it's a mixture of like things like I think the one thing we didn't talk too much about the show, which I really wish we should have given a little bit more praise to, was the use of physical props, costumes, and, and physical oh, yeah, stuff for sure. over yeah. the over the you know in amalgamation with the visual effects. It never it didn't lean too far to one side, which yeah. I think needs to be worth uh, noting. That that's fair enough. Yeah, so, I mean sometimes we just forget things. You know, just films are yeah. big beasts, especially ones like Dune. You just you forget to talk about some aspects of it. Yeah, of course, of course. But, yeah. So uh, that that would definitely be for me. I'd say. Cool. I think the power of the dog is a, a completely different um, beast of a film, though. Right. Um, and I'm I'm really hoping to get a couple more of her um, films, Campion's films. I yep. definitely would love to tick the piano off my list. And yeah, that's a big one. Found another one of her films. I think it's called Follow Us or Follow Me. Okay. Um, just as an op shop. So I was like, okay. Yeah, they're doing the piano criterion very soon. That's like a February drop, so I might get a couple of those. Um, and I'm the 
same friend who I mentioned who saw Bond recently. He actually worked on the piano decades ago. So I'll probably give him a copy as well for maybe a birthday situation. But I'm with you, Jane Campion. I want to jump on that too. Sorry, it's called Bright Star. I don't know where I got the photo. (laughs) It's very different. Really close. But it's a third (laughs) highest build film. Okay. On On the uh, old letterbox. On the old letterbox. The new resume for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> the, the tagline. Exactly. You just sign it. You print off the page on a piece of paper and then you sign it. Sign it, yeah. I'd say I should I should do that with my letterbox. So, yeah. <laughs> That's uh yeah, I've got that one too, so I'm hoping to tick I've got both of them on DVD, so beautiful. Well, yeah. I'm gonna pose the same question to you in regards to best pictures from the twenty seven Critics Choice Awards. So I think I'm guessing this leans more American. I mean a lot of these do, frankly. Um I'm trying to pick what the differences from critics. I mean, these are all just different organizations. Golden Globes, and we've got to point out that those were actually relatively more normal, um, nice uh, nominations compared mm. to like last year, where a lot of them are just jokes. It's because the Golden Globes is such a small organization. Just so few people actually uh, select from. I think it's less than a hundred, which it it frankly should be a lot more than that. Uh, who pick these ones? But look at Critics Choice Awards Best Picture, which I think is ten. It looks like ten. Yeah, Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley. I don't think they're going to chat it anywhere in the Golden Globes. Uh, the Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. So out of these you've seen, let's see. So obviously Dune, Power of the Dog, oh, and Tick, Tick, Boom. So this is a free. Probably going to take off another three in like the next yes, yes, month or exactly. so. Though, right? In like, the next week even. Huh? Yeah. Um... <laughs> Out of the three I've seen, I'd still probably stay fast with Dune, but yep. I really think Licorice Pizza is going to become my flag bearer for yeah, yeah, I feel uh, all my all awards, everything, just everything <laughs> wins uh, everything ever. That oh, that I actually honestly I'm holding out a lot of hope for West Side Story. Yeah, so cool. I'm hearing it's great. So that's gonna be for me. I think too that I'm like yeah. I did enjoy Tick Tick Boom, and I'm sure uh, we might even get a mention of that in the second half of the show. So. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. So out of these, I've seen uh, Coda, Dune, Coda, Coda, and Dune. That's it. <laughs> I guess out of those two, I'd give it to Dune. Dune I suppose. Um, <laughs> uh, but even so, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see Coda in here. It's doing w- way better than I thought it would. It's getting a lot of love. Yeah, but um, oh, I've seen Don't Look Up, of course. Yes. But even then, I'd probably still lean towards Dune. That's fair enough. But yeah, I think a lot of these. Almost all of these will be easily able to be watched within the next week for us, mm. which is fantastic. Um, and leaning over to director, which has six. Wow. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Belfast, Licorice Pizza, Power the Dog, Nightmare Alley, West Side Story, and Dune. So very similar list there, um, which is interesting. We look at actor. We've got Nicolas Cage for Pig, which is exciting. Yes. He's up yep. there. It's happening. Alongside Benedict Cumberbatch, Andrew Garfield. Uh, Peter Dinklage, Denzel Washington, Will Smith. A lot of these are six. Okay, that, I didn't realize that. That's cool. I mean, I am always a fan. I've said this before when we've done award shows and but I'm always a fan when there's just more, more nominations, more opportunities for wins, splitting categories into you know, um, female, male, or comedy versus drama. Like, yeah. I always just split them. I like more things getting recognized, more things getting loved. I always love it. So six instead of five. I love that. I think it's great. Anyway, best actress Jessica Chastain, uh, Olivia Coleman, Lady Gaga, Alana Ham, Nicole Kidman, uh, Kristen Stewart. So the only extra one there from Golden Globes. It's the exact same, except for Alana. 
Hammer's licorice pizza. Mm-hmm. So it's looking like that actress race is going to be very predictable. Yeah. This year, but that's fine. That's okay. It might things might shuffle by the time we get to the Oscar race. Who knows? Um, let's see. Um, just kind of going through it. Interestingly, two two people from Belfast in supporting actor were Jamie Dorhan and, and Clara Hines as par and pop respectively. They didn't really think that hard with those names, did they? Yeah, not. <laughs> to distinguish them. Let me tell me it's not a centre point of the film's yeah. purpose. Poss- oh, possibly, possibly. <laughs> when, uh, I, I like to think it would be funnier if they just like misspelt one of their names and they both got nominated <laughs> they were trying to nominate the same character <laughs> to me that's a funnier story i like that i'm gonna stick with that yeah stick with that um so yeah i'm just going through these i want to find ones that are more interesting i don't want to mm. just like rattle everything off um of, oh you got the best young actor and actress category so you obviously got cooper hoffman um oh only cooper hoffman for licorice pizza that's interesting oh i guess because she's already in the actress category Yes. That makes sense. That mm. makes sense. That's fair enough. Um Jude, the premise of that film. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Um, Jude Hill for Belfast. Emily Jones uh, for Coda. Woody Norman for Come On, Come On. We're finally getting some Come On, Come On love. I'm glad because I've been saying Come On, guys, for so long, trying to get them to... Yeah. You were repeating it over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. I only needed to say it twice, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, best Ensemble, Belfast, Don't Look Up, The Harder They Fall, Licorice Pizza, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. I like Don't Look Up being in there. I mean, that's great. And Licorice Pizza are interesting because like those two are getting a lot of nods. Mm. So it's interesting you're getting Ensemble as well. I have a feeling Licorice Pizza's Ensemble is going to rock that. Yeah. PTA constantly has great Ensemble. Yeah, that's a, fair, that's a fair point. And now that I'm thinking about it, you've got like a safety in there. You've got obviously... Um, yeah. Uh, Bradley Cooper and, and Dustin like Hoffman's Dustin for a bit. Dustin Hoffman. Oh, I have to double check this. Let me check this. Yeah, double check that. I know Bradley Cooper's in it. Yeah, right. I mean, we there is a Hoffman in it. <laughs> I will double <laughs> check Cooper this. Hoffman. Um, oh, yeah. Sean Penn. I got to mix up. Oh, Sean Penn. Fair enough. But that, that's another one. That's another great one. Sean uh, Penn. Tom Waits. Tom Waits. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more it makes sense to me. The ensemble. Apparently, John C. Riley. Well, oh, there you go. It's a PTA film. Yeah, I guess that, I guess that makes sense. John C. Riley, love. There you go. For screenplay, adapted and original, you have Licorice Pizza, King Richard, Belfast, Don't Look Up, Being the Ricardos, and then over for adapted, you have Power of the Dog, Lost Daughter, Coda, West Side Serene, Dune. No surprises there at this rate. I don't think that's all pretty spot on. For cinematography, we have The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is awesome to see. Dune, West Side Story, Nightmare Alley, Power of the Dog, Belfast. Um, yeah, that all checks out from the trailers and everything that I've seen, all the, all the visuals, I should say. Um, editing, you have West Side Story, Belfast, Licorice Pizza, Power of the Dog, and Dune. It's a lot It's a lot of the same stuff mm-hmm. for everything. Costume, score, it's all of that. I'm glad Don't Look Up, Nicholas Bratel is getting a score nod. Um, you've got Cruella and Houcha Gucci over in hair and makeup. Uh, you've got The Matrix, Resurrections in visual effects. We're also going to learn more about that. Later in the show, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big week. And uh, best animated feature. Oh, they got the Mitchells and the Machines here. Hell yeah! Bit of love. Yeah, people keep forgetting about that. Come on, come on, guys. It's, it's a great a banger. It's a great film. Best comedy. Barb and Star go uh, to Vista Del Mar. Don't look up. Free Guy, The French Dispatch, and The Grish Pizza. Come on, French French Dispatch, surely. 
It would be interesting if Don't Look Up won, though. Yeah. Because that's very politically humorous. While The French Dispatch is just, like, fun, like, classic fun antics in the cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Wheelchair racing. Yeah. <laughs> Wheelchair racing, exactly. You know, we are watching uh, Mr. Bean the other day, like, just smashing through Mr. Bean episodes, and it's just, oh, it's great. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's very clever. I love it. Um, and let's see. Any other surprise? I'm looking for production design, editing. No, these are all pretty much what we anticipate. For best foreign language film, we have Drive My Car, Flea, so it's the documentary again, The Hand of God, A Hero, and The Worst Person in the World. We will also be hearing about that one later in the show. That's all I have, Zeke, for awards discussion. Beautiful. <laughs> well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Spider-Man No Way Home. Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. When you botched that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man, we started getting some visitors. every universe. Hello, Peter. You're not Peter Parker. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Dr. Otto Octavius. (laughs) Wait, no, seriously, what's your actual name? There are others out there. We need to send them back. So, Scooby-Doo this crap. You know, all this is kind of your mess. I know a couple of magic words myself, starting with the word please. Please, Scooby-Doo this crap. Peter Parker is unmasked and no longer able to separate his normal life from his high-stakes career of being a superhero. When he asks for help from Doctor Strange, the stakes become even more dangerous, forcing him to discover what it truly means to be Spooderman. <laughs> Spooderman. <laughs> Got me there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Spider-Man, no way home. He has no way home. He has no way home. He's stuffed. He's got no home. Um, Jake, <laughs> how much... <laughs> um, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to really struggle with the non-spoiler part of this discussion. I spoiler think. alert everyone. So do we just jump straight spoilers. into spoilers? Yep. Yes we do. Um yeah, look, to be honest, if you've come here to listen to this review and expected it not to just go straight into the spoiler territory, I mean, I'm sorry. Like go watch the film. Apparently it pulled a ridiculous amount of money in its first 24 the, hours. Yeah, the opening it came through today the opening weekend international box it was like 587 million just under 600 mil yeah so it's it's going to hit a billion post pandemic which is absolutely insane yeah and it's going to happen that's probably the key point to take away from this obviously this is the biggest film that has come out in the last 2 years in terms of box office return and yeah sort of big fight feel sort of feel you know Tenet Bond Dune had nothing on this yeah although Dune did pretty well I'm pretty sure yeah but it's like it's like everything it's like we went and saw when I went and saw Dune 
there was maybe and i saw it pretty close to a week or two after there's maybe 20 30 people in the cinema bond right, i yeah. saw in this last week there was only there was actually not a bad bond return on it was probably still about 20 30 people right um what was the other one you just mentioned oh tenant we saw tenant together yeah that, that was like a 60 seater though on it was a preview screening yeah. so that was it was full but like it's not like 300 people in a Hoyt cinema full. And that was the only time that got very close with um, Quiet Place Part 2. I remember that being like, wow, there's quite a few people here. Mm -hmm. But this was a whole nother level of like packed cinema. Like people just spewing out into the front, front, front rows of the seats. And yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Absolutely insane. I mean, we were obviously went together but obviously had quite a few yep. friends of our of the show um also go see mm. coincidentally the same screening time yeah so there's five of us in close proximity yes of a, and then a full cinema well we had to steal seats we did there were two seats behind our friends that we were like let's wait see what happens and no one showed up yeah so just as the lights dimmed and the the big marvel <laughs> sprawl came in we, we just sprinted. pegged it straight to those seats and we were like look <laughs> someone comes 10 minutes in, and I was a little worried because I remember there was about 10 minutes still in. Still more people walking people in. People yeah. were falling in. I was like, oh, crap. They're right. We're totally going to have this awkward, like, hey, can you just go sit there? Yeah. Even though... It didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. never happened, though. So we just ended up enjoying the cinema, the cinematic experience with our friends of the show. Yeah. Um, you leaned in quite a few times to give, particularly Stephen Clark, a lot of shit. Oh, it's because <laughs> me and Stephen had a... Well, not a... not Stephen said if the lizard had more than five lines, he would leave. And the lizard indeed had more than five lines in this film. That's a spoiler, Jay. <laughs> oh, um, no, I spoiled the lizard. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's pretty much all I've got to add to this um, non-spoiler part of the conversation. Yep, yep. Um, we didn't have any endgame scenarios with me screaming at a bunch of adolescent teens. No, it was just shockingly... Obviously, there were maybe two moments where the cinema cheered, but... No flash photography. It was yeah, a shockingly actually, respectable cinema. I was going to say, yeah, we've got to give props to our our cinema. And there, oh, was, there was the one, wasn't there? There was there was indeed one, but I was very proud of the response the cinema gave for when someone's light definitely came on for a flash, yeah. when a certain character appeared on screen. And um, the collective groan and or little low-key booing that happened because yeah, of it. Yeah, it's just like, oh. Was, you dare <laughs> was very appreciated way better than the end game oh a million times better experience yeah. so um props to that thank um, you audience and getting out of the cinema at only 11 o'clock was nice not at three in the morning yeah <laughs> <laughs> we got we were slightly more on the ball this time with our yeah with our tickets so that's good that's so good. uh so jake we'll jump yeah. into spoilers so this is the Spoiler part. Um, what do you think of Spooderman? Yeah, so I was obviously very excited going into this, and I wrote this in my letterbox review, and I wanted to emphasize because I get annoyed when I see people do this. I'm watching things and like, I grew up with Spider-Man and my childhood, and it's like, yeah, I feel like most of us did. You know, I don't think that's a, not a collective thought. It's not a unique viewpoint. So, like, I feel bad even having to say the same thing myself. Like, oh, well, I grew up with the, you know, Spider-Man, especially the Tobey films, and then I still liked Andrew Garford as the character. Obviously, the second Amazing Spider-Man is not great at all. But, um, like, you know, I, I'm all, I've seen every Spider-Man film since Tobey's in the cinema on release. Like, I just, I love these films. I love the character, obviously. 
Um, and this film was very clearly a, what's the word, like a, a union of love for it, or a show of appreciation, I think is the word that I used, um, for the character and for the, the universes that were created in the Raimi films and the Garfield films, or the Mark Webb films, I should say, technically, and then, of course, the MCU. This big combination of, of villains and heroes and storylines all placed into one. So, as that film... I walked away very satisfied. Now, going in, I was fully anticipating I was correct. There's a lot of messy story elements in this film. And as the third part of a trilogy, even though I said at the start that John Watts was the con- consistent director throughout all three of these films, that does not mean that the theme of this trilogy is consistent. There is so much inconsistent with this film against the other two, against Homecoming and No Way Home, or sorry, Far From Home, um, which, like I mentioned earlier, I did rewatch. Uh, Thursday morning, and my feelings were cemented. I don't think it's great. I was actually quite bored. I found a lot of the sort of the um, summer fling themes of like Ned and Betty having a fling and then breaking up, or Happy and Aunt May having a thing and then not being a thing. Like I thought there was a lot of things in the film that I was like, why is this here? Yeah. I just I thought a lot it was of very awful. Yeah, exactly. It was a very nothing film for me, and this definitely is not. This is a complete polar opposite of a nothing film. From that standpoint, but it showed that Sony and Marvel were so focused on banking on the nostalgia aspect, which again I was very satisfied with. I loved, but it's it's also very disrespectful to its own universe, mm. and I'll get into that more specifically soon. But I think if you, as long as you don't mind that, if you don't mind that this takes a big poo on Homecoming and Far From Home's sort of continuing arcs, I would argue then it's fine. The other films that that. Holland has been in has it definitely even like affects those films too. Mm. Um, the MCU collective, if you will, um, uh, in exchange for really just sort of yeah, like you said, bank banking on nostalgia is the best way of phrasing it because it's about the money monetized incentive of cashing in on nostalgic yep. placement really over the betterment of the story and like you said, thematic uh, continuity. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And, like, I look at those first two films as, you know, bo- I mean, both villains, it's perfect. Both films open up with, like, a little prologue, the um the, the thing that comes up before the Marvel logo that gives you a hint at the villain who, you know, Vulture and Mysterio, respectively, and how they're just, you know, middle-class working citizens screwed over by, you know, the bureaucracy of what Tony Stark has created where, you know, he wants a clean-up job internally to get rid of the alien technology and that screws over uh, Michael Keaton's, you know, his boys and the money he spent on the job. So he ends up becoming a petty thug or Mysterio, Mysterio, sorry, rather he, he insults his technology that he makes for Stark. So he's like, all right, I'm going to use it to make illusions and screw people over. They're very petty, low class villains that are perfect for someone like Spider-Man who, you know, unlike his older, wiser, peers in the other mm. Avengers, he gets the smaller stakes. And those are what make those films fun and interesting. Yeah. And this film doesn't have any of that. It's like, ah, oh, here are the old villains. That consistency is just wiped away. Mm-hmm. And even the low-key stakes, and we're going to talk about that, The which do exist in this film, like the whole getting into college thing, it exists, but that doesn't mean it was done very well. No. And uh, But that, that's what I got to say. As long as you don't mind that that legacy sort of replaced for a more nostalgic legacy that was established by other companies years ago and other directors, then you're going to really love this film. 
but that's if you don't mind this. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I have to, I have to, to, to obviously build on that point. It's like looking at the mm. the spectral range of ratings from right. our uh, sort of letterbox community members on this film, and how like all of them have probably come from the exact same point of origin with Spider Man. They've all right. quote grown up with it. Mm. So particularly the Raimi and and the Web films, and it's so it's like this one. You either love the fact that it, you know gives um grace of continuity and respect to those films but mm. at the same time it also does in in the same vein work against those films and actually to some degrees contradicts their existence um which we'll probably get into when we walk into the the interest keys the, the honestly the through line plot and mission of holland's spider-man in this particular mm. film um i don't mind the film um I sat very. Uh, I I enjoy bits of it. I I enjoy particularly um, the reprisal of some roles, particularly the yeah. Raimi villains. Right. Okay. But I think the ones that come out of Garfield's one really showcase their fundamental weaknesses <laughs> straight off the bat. Um, I don't like that. It definitely feels like for some actors, this film felt like I'm going to come back and make as much money off my own um property as possible possible. whereas in contrast some of them come back and really do give 110 percent yeah um so it's it's definitely a nice middle ground between the two of which ones look like they're phoning it in sometimes and which ones (laughs) are actually like you know what i love that i'm back in this role and i'm going to give this 100 there's there's definitely between specifically the villains you can tell each one of them had a different pitch to be involved in this film yeah some were authentically interested in revisiting their characters some were authentically interested in rewriting their own characters yep. and then some were just like okay i have to go into a voice booth for five or six yep, days yep and that's my role and that's all i have to do and i'm willing to do that oh, um which to look i don't blame them because some of them are done they had their films they yep. had their time and they're willing to be like okay i didn't you know i pay my due diligence you know We've had they've been very similar on uh, the record conversations like people like Patterson with Twilight and stuff like that that come in, do their blockbuster films so then they can go and work their craft in smaller projects they're actually more enthused by yeah um, and that definitely shows in this film um, there are really good moments in this like excellent moments particularly some of the action sequences are some of my favorite that I've seen mm. in, in definitely recent MCU films. And some cameos are actually huge, like were warranting of the the applause they got. Or, yeah, or even the the slight sh- shocks. There's one that happens very early on in the film that it, uh, it makes me very happy. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, well, I mean, we can just say it right. At, like, yeah. I imagine that's the Matt Murdock one you referred yeah, to. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, like that's one of those things that because you know what that leads to is it's one of those things that. MCU films are doing kind of what the obviously the DCU films failed in this last wave, mm. which is they really like a TV version, a TV's depiction of a certain superhero, and the big studio doesn't have faith in it and thinks they recast, and it actually leads to negative press. That happened a lot with um, Ezra Miller's Flash over mm. that sort of transition, yep. and it's it's nice to see. Um, like obviously Matt Murdock's depiction in the Netflix Daredevil series is the one they're going to go with for these MCU films, um, which ho- hopefully means we're going to get a John Bernthal eventually <laughs> as Punisher. 
But Still holding out hope. He's coming. He's coming. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, it's just that respect of content, respect of community and continuity, which I do think that I'm of that middle ground where sometimes studios do have to make hardcore and these comic book fanatics, because some of them are quite fanatical, can just check mm-hmm. their ego at the door and just enjoy the product they're served. But at the same time, there has to be that give and take of Yeah, of for both. sure. Um, and yeah, and as someone who I haven't seen the Dare, which I know people like it, quite a lot yeah um and obviously i heard a lot of the rumors and it's like i didn't personally care or needed that cameo but i think it's nice it's in there because you're right there's a new sense newfound sense of continuity in there and it's like you might as well for the film like i said this is a film that's leaning more towards a show of appreciation and appreciating what's come before it as opposed to you know continuing the arc of a trilogy you might as well throw him in there mm-hmm. yeah i think it's perfectly fine yeah and i think that's really great and then obviously um you know, when we jump into things like, obviously, in the second half of the film, we, we see Andrew Garfield finally appear, and mm-hmm. that was led to a lot of applause, which was a really positive reaction, which yep. um, it definitely looked like he stumbled off the set of Tick, Tick, Boom with his quite poofy hair. <laughs> um, and Tobey Maguire just wanders into the scene, which is kind of he funny. Walk- but, um, what was it that Steven says? Is all the characters sort of walk in... Like, oh my god, I'm in a multiverse. This is crazy. Yeah. And Tobey Maguire just like walks in like, all right, boys, here's what's happening. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. And uh, look, he is definitely one of those people I'm talking about that kind of feels like at times he's phoning it in. Sometimes he's giving legitimately good scenes and then sometimes it definitely, he just kind of looks tired by the role. Mm. He looks tired just in general, but um, it, it was interesting because obviously... You know, you told me after we watched the screening that Maguire got offered thirty million and turned it down, which really shows. I mean, it was some. It was like that. I mean, this is ages and ages yeah. ago, but yeah, the number was big. So what? What one could only guess what he settled on to be on on that set. So, um, it, it's definitely interesting. I have my problems with the plot. It definitely feels like sometimes it's a bit long winded and drawn out, and sometimes a bit contrived. Like we just need to get, we clearly need to get Holland to a certain point at the end of the film. Yes. So he needs to basically do some laughably silly things that basically, when we think about it, completely ruins things and sort of leaves me at times, particularly even the opening, the first act of the film, I'm left head scratching as to why. And honestly, I feel like Doctor Strange's character, the the longer he's existed mm. in the MCU, has become increasingly more dumb. <laughs> like, There's a lot of MCU characters like that. They just kind of get and they're only the dumb just there. to enable things further. Yeah, and things like the post credit trailer scene, uh, post credit credit mm. really shows how it's like. Okay, we really have to. These characters are these all power human human beings that are larger than life. Uh, still lose to a 17-year-old because he knows how to do math. Like, let's <laughs> let's ask ourselves this. Like, uh, it's just kind of contrived. And the, I think particularly the biggest frustration is trying to wrap up Aunt May's arc because mm-hmm. they really showed how underdeveloped she was because of this film. Prior, you know, she really gets next to no development in the first two films. And right. she has to do a lot in the the hour and so she's in this film in order to get everything in motion, yeah, basically. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll mention it, and I think yeah, there's a great segue here where we can actually start talking about this from a chronological standpoint from start to finish, because mm. there's, there's a lot to cover. But with the Aunt May thing, I thought it was interesting because there's a lot of things she's just sort of doing in this film that I'm thinking, like, 
were those ever established in the other two? Like, I I know from, like, playing the PS4 game and things, I know things about Aunt May, you know, that she works at um, at Feast, for example, which is, like, a homeless shelter yeah. and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, they're important to this story, but they weren't established at the beginning of or in any of the other two films. It's in the second film, though, isn't it? Isn't it her at Feast? It. Yeah, but it, but this is the thing. They they take away... Well, my The problem is exactly what you, you're saying is... The fact that you can't pick that up is... Why we watched that second film the day I of? I feel like it's... And I remember being like, I don't remember her being... I think the Amazing Spider-Man 2, I think she's like a mature age student, like in nursing or something. And there's a scene where she's in a hospital and the, like, the power comes back and she's relieved. But that's not even the same universe. It's well, not the correct this, movie. This one, I, I'm sorry, but like... because And this, this is actually where we come back to the fact that it's not respecting its own... MCU continuity in the Holland universe right. is the fact that it was very clear that almost Uncle Ben's caricature was was enveloped by Tony Stark in this one, mm. in this depiction. But the rea- like it wasn't Aunt May was seen as the mentor figure. In fact, it was very clear from the get-go, the point of Tony Stark's relationship to Tom Holland was that Uncle Ben role. Yeah, And that's what then they were and that was clearly shown through both not both of the I th- especially homecoming and then on top of that the avengers films it was very clear that that was the relationship dynamic they had when holland was getting blipped out of existence tony's reaction yeah. is exactly what it needs to be yeah. just as and and then the inverse when stark dies at the end of endgame their farewell has the same death of uncle ben Situation, and I feel like that was where the right, the emotionality went. behind it. Yeah, I guess. and then and I think they're just trying to retcon it and almost give this film like it's basically it's trying to be the first Raimi Spider-Man film where Uncle Ben's death is basically Aunt May's eventual death. Right. Well, yeah. what what this film presents is actual consequences to actions, and that's something that, as much as I love Homecoming, that's like my one big issue with that, and and Far From Home doesn't even bother tackling with this is this idea of responsibility of of uh peter screwing up or doing something rational um or irrational i should say mm. and then having to face the consequence and like having a loved one die and then having to just suck it up and you know he can't just exact revenge on that he has to swallow that and you use it as part of his uh not meta uh motto what what am i thinking of but like yeah he uses that and mm. channels it into something good that he continues to do good for the city of new york and this is the first film that even attempts that to have him go through something to face consequences and come out the other end yeah having dealt with loss i think it's just the the call to action in this is to get everything in place to have this nostalgia trip and this this character arc as you will is is where i'm coming back to that contrivance thing it's like you know, they make the Scooby-Doo this crap joke, but it's like, mm. it's almost a Scooby-Doo laughable thing that enables all this crap to ensue. The fact that, mm. you know, when he's saying there's going to be this spell that forgets that you're Spider-Man and that mm. means everyone. And then he starts backpedaling and trying to add all the people in his life that he cares about when really this conversation was very clear cut. Like, and for all of that that sort of contrivance and the alternate timelines that lead to this inciting event of all of these visitors appearing, it's just so laughably silly. Like, well, and I, th- I don't think it's it carries the same immature weight that something like Raimi's Spider-Man does. Because, like, yeah, his immaturity gets him killed, but if anything, he follows he follows Aunt May's 
um, advice, and that's what gets her killed. And he, mm. it's not his stupidity that gets her killed. It's him actually following her values and beliefs, which is completely contrary to what happened with Uncle Ben's death. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, what kind of message that that sends? Because it's part of that frustration of it's not her fault. You know, she's dead, but it's not her fault. And again, I, I would like to reel it back to the start because it, it comes back to that immaturity that Peter had. The immature part comes from him like wanting to rewrite history and the world so his friends can get into college which i think is a very it's a very weak motivation it's so weak and it's like you can make a version of this film where that doesn't feel weak because like we look at it and we're like oh is college really that important <laughs> for what for yeah. what he's caused for this thing but you can make a version of this film where yes college is important i think the trouble is they spent so much time at the beginning of the film establishing the public scrutiny and the fact that everyone hates him and thinks he killed Mysterio and all of these things. Well, it's divisive. There's, there's half right. the people that hate him, half the people that... Yeah, yeah. but it's the, the idea is that people are throwing bricks through his window and he has, he'd have to move into Happy's apartment to get away from that. And, you know, he can't have a normal life at school. His friends can't have a normal life at school. They spend so much time establishing that. So when we cut to the college, you know, uh, thing of, oh, did we get into college? It's just so sudden. Mm. And they don't spend the time to make it feel like a big deal. Yeah. To the point where Peter would make this very risky thing. And to that point, I was shocked because even the trailer didn't allude to how just passive Doctor Strange and Wong were. In the trailer, Wong's like, oh, don't use this spell. It's too dangerous. But in the film, he's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but that's <laughs> what I mean. Like, and, and it comes back to what I don't like is in the post spell that they're like, you, you could have just called them. And like, or like he finds that Strange finds out that Holland didn't even try and like, do it the normal way. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, but you're the person that jumps straight to, let's do the big forget me spell. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. It's like, why is Strange, he's building his own film as this incredibly yeah. intellectual, like he has to undertake all this massive power. He comes up with this big Th- Thanos defeating plan. <laughs> and yet his go-to is, let's just do a big old forget me spell. And then like, neither of them figuring out that that means, like the fact that Holland doesn't figure out that means everyone even though it's like Strange has never met any of the people that know he's Spider-Man in his life. So there's no like briefing session. For yeah. It's just, let's jump straight to the spell because they need to jump straight to the story. And that's what I mean. The, like you're saying, the premise is really weak and really passive. The, and it, yeah. And it has depleting returns on characters' continuity. It, it, it's basically like, we need to get quickly to this nostalgia train. Yeah, like, we, yeah we're, we're eating the broccoli, but you know, if we get through it really quickly, we get to the ice cream, we get to yeah. the, the dessert, you know. Yeah. And it's, it's like, yeah. oh, hang on a second, like, they are making really stupid decisions for no reason other than we need to see Doc Ock on the screen or we need to see Green Goblin on the screen or we need to see Jamie Foxx for some yeah. reason on the screen. The, the equivalent is if you're watching Avengers Endgame and they come up with this idea like, okay, well, we're going to use this time-travelling thing to go get the stones. Like, All right, let's just do it. Go, go, go. Press the button. Go, let's yeah. go. Instead of the 20-minute montage of them sitting down, figuring out where all the stones are, talking to each character. Okay, what's your relation? Like, who yeah. who do you know met the stone? Like, oh, wow, the three of them in New York. So like, let's do this at this time period, and we'll get these people to go to this timeline. And then in this film, it's like, oh, you want to change time? Okay, done. Whoopsies. Yeah. <laughs> the best bit is when he's like, I don't have the time. And the only continuity respect is, I don't have the time stone anymore. But I have this other forget me so that it will affect the timeline. <laughs> It's like okay, so they really, they really. But it doesn't matter. I have this because that's what it is. It's like this, this film awesome. really at its core, it's all f- 
for go. Let's jump on the Spider-Man nostalgia train because apparently, you know, everyone has, like you said at the start of their reviews, I grew up with Spider-Man because I'm this unique, special person that grew up with Spider-Man. No one else did. Um, and, and we're going to... We're just basically going to get to the point where all of these characters are on screen just so we can have a big old spider-man fun party of, of all of this like st- it's like a tackle box of spider-man and characters it's, what makes, it, it's everything and it makes the ending <laughs> kind of confusing and contrived it, it leads to it, at on the surface there are these really fun riff scenes are really fun oh it's cool to see this actor reprise this role but then you like scratch past the nostalgia rose tinted goggles and all you've got is a bit of a mess with like people just sitting there rubbing their hands together being like oh i made a lot of money off this <laughs> um and i think that's what's frustrating the most because it's it, it really does go against at least like i have my problems with the second holland spider-man film but at least it, like you said it kind of keeps within the same sort of tonal realm of like small time villain yeah well, scale appropriate exactly and even just like the idea that the first one's like ferris bueller's day off and then the second one's like a, a vacation film we're like, oh, he wants to ask MJ out, and the teacher dropped his camera in the water. Whoopsies! Like and it's it's chill, it's fun. The the contrivance you know. thing, this especially Spider Man of all of the films has no leg to stand on because not two years earlier was an animated film that literally talked about bringing six different Spider Men in one film. Mm. Still have a thematic through line that developed maturity and self responsibility within a hundred and forty minutes, not like nearly two and a half hours yeah. and it had oh, two th- preceding this, this films. is well over two and a half hours that's what i mean yeah. it's like so then ask yourself that it's like we got introduced to what was it, it is six different spider-men in that spider-verse film i think so because you got you got spider ham nicholas cage peter b parker mj obviously miles that's five there might be a sixth one in there yeah but it's like and then that film i'm like i understand oh penny, penny parker yeah yeah, so yeah I have so like, six the six so and this has three <laughs> and a couple and a couple of villains and it's like but it doesn't it, i can tell you exactly what the through line in that is and what i'm learning from it and how he becomes responsible yeah. because of the death of a mentor which is introduced is all in the same film i'm surprised i remembered all six of them speaks, that, speaks that to Pi- speaks, spider-verse yeah speaks to spider-verse as being the best spider-man film um you have to whisper that most people no, agree with you <laughs> no, I, it's like it is because it's like the fact is it's that's really what it comes back to. Why, how clean and clear everything is in that film. Whereas in this film, it's like... Well, they have to they have to tie it into the MCU story so that they're stuffed because they, they have to eat the broccoli dinner in the first place. They have to rush through their first act. Okay, so this is what it comes back to, right? Like, let's talk about, like, these contrivances from a point to point to the film. So one of the big problems that I'm saying with like Aunt May is the reason that she has that rush of res- that Uncle Ben responsibility in this film is because in the other two films she's kind of used as this fun albeit kind of a joke character because she's really attractive and every male around her age is attracted to her yeah. and that's pretty and they're much all, they're what all like surprised May's... as well like he's like your unusually attractive aunt that's a line it's like yeah. why is that unusual because because we the audience anticipate someone in their 60s and 70s playing that role. Yeah. And it's like... It's like, like it's a joke, you're right. They make a joke out of it. She's, like, non-existent in the second film, and she's only used as, like, with the Favreau happy joke. And then in the first film, the big part of the first film is Stark's Uncle Ben responsibility to it. And that's what they decided to take their direction, and this film completely contradicts that because they now go, well, Stark's dead. 
So we need to actually push Aunt May into this role so he can have this sudden burst of maturity because he's always got these mentors around him. Because in the second film, Happy's kind of used as that like stepdad mm-hmm. character that's constantly like, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just, yeah, it just doesn't respect its own thing. And also the, the amount of fake-out deaths in this film that leads to... There's a few, my goodness, like, yeah. The scene in which, so basically, you know, we we flash forward after they've botched this spell, this spell which makes everyone look very silly. Um, yeah, was, well, as, so as the villains start coming in, it becomes a bit of a fetch quest. Like we have to collect all these villains, and yeah. we start seeing the dynamic. I actually, I will say, I thought it was very clever. Well, it was really nice to have all the villains sort of in one room. So obviously, Peter, the midpoint reveal, I guess, is that they're being sent home to die. Mm-hmm. And that that goes against Peter's moral compass, which, correct me if I'm wrong, because he finds Green Goblin at feast with Aunt May, yeah, and he's sort of this homeless, scared man, and then Peter's the one that just wants to send him off, and it's Aunt May who says, "Well, let's be more trusting, let's give it a second chance." So that's what influences the midpoint shift mm. where he's like, "No, let's keep these villains here and try and save them." So, like you said, him and Doctor Strange fight it out. He traps him in, I guess, the mirror world. Um, which yeah, we'll just gloat over that. <laughs> and you've already talked about yeah. it. It's a it's a one of those Doctor Strange esque fights, which weren't bad in the first Strange film. But yeah, it's I mean, of... it's they're still co- it's cool cinematography. I said I'm like I would love a video game of this. Yeah. Of Spidey, like all the all very surrealistic things flying in the air. And but he does across that, he does but... win by using high school math, and I know he's a smart. <laughs> well, he, yeah, he's smart. <laughs> he's smart, but this guy was also not only is he. <laughs> a what is he the all time the sorcerer supreme basically well, he's, he's not anymore uh, yeah because <laughs> he got blipped out of existence and then on top of that he's also was in his normal life yeah. a was he a brain, a brain surgeon sur- oh yeah he's some surgeon. so <laughs> versus a 17 year old who's good at high school math okay who wants to get who's going to get into MIT which is a, a prestigious college so little I think I think Strange would have the upper hand in that fight, but sure. Yeah, Geometry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's look, it's definitely a more unique way of Ah yeah, it's it's a different way of defeating him, I suppose is punching him, so it's yeah, something. Sure. But yeah, it's but you're right, it's it's a cheap way to get him out of the movies. So now we can do the rest of the movie. Yeah. So he brings them all back to Happy's apartment. And like I said, I actually do generally like the idea of having the villains sort of in a more relaxed state where they can just like talk. So, like, having them all in a room sort of brushed against each other, it's like that meme of all the, the villains. Yeah, and look, <laughs> this is going to, like, highlight some of the big positives of this film. Alfred Molina as Doc Ock, he's great. Mm. Um, uh, and and Willem Dafoe as, as Green Goblin. Is, yeah, they're like the said, two. He's, he's the MVP. Perfect in this. And what he does with his time is great. We get to see a lot of that manipulation stuff, which is some of the best stuff from the Raimi trilogy, where we get to see that sort of, like alter ego manipulation stuff. Mm, yep. Um, I love the callback, the the kind of the transformation he undergoes to be to a more traditional Green Goblin comic book-esque. That, right, like that, the, the, the outfit the and stuff like yeah. that, yeah. Um, that's great. But then and then you got the other hand, where like you said, it's like you made the joke about the lizard, how many lines the lizard would have, and you really <laughs> see how stupid the lizard is as a character <laughs> in this. And... Well, and then Jamie Foxx, who... Who completely retcons re- his yeah. character, basically. Complete, he's just playing Jamie Foxx now in this. Yeah. He's straight out of Django, basically. <laughs> um, Which, you know, because we talk about... It's those two. 
Those mm. two are the ones who slip into their old roles, like you know, like an, a good old sock, mm. and it they are so perfect. And I was talking to Jack, friend of the show, of course, is a gigantic Spider-Man fan. He said he liked he thought um, Defoe was better in this than the original film. I would say brilliant in this. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that's a wrong point though. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think like the point that he's trying to make that corruptibility. I think the problem is like. The turning point, obviously, when Defoe uh, turns and becomes really the central antagonist of the film. They all have, obviously, the, the, that sort of... The one problem this film has, obviously, is their their motivation as as antagonists is simply just self-preservation, really. Like, yes, that's it. at that point, yeah. Um, so all of their... And obviously, the chief protagonistic motivation is we need to turn them all back to good guys... Or people that aren't going to harm, so they can have their second chance. Because yes. a lot of them were robbed of of a second chance of redemption. However, it's uh, you know the problem is obviously we can we'll jump probably into some of the time travel logic or timeline logic. Is if they're all pulled out at the moment just before they die, mm. what does that really mean for a lot of them? Um, where would they be placed um, back in their respective worlds? Um, which is very confusing in its own right and sort of. They don't. They kind of redact that information from the, uh, the, so we don't get any answers. So we sort of just have to lead to the, like maybe they're just put back in their worlds. Yeah. In, well, I mean, we'll get into that. I, I mean, those are semantics. I frankly didn't really care about. Fair uh, enough. When watching it, we'll, we'll get into them soon though. But you know, and to that point of having those two, you know, they slip back into the roles so perfectly and they portray mm-hmm. them so perfectly. And interesting, they come from probably the two best films out of that whole legacy. But then, yeah, you have Jamie Foxx, and it's like, well, it doesn't work because he's playing a different character. It's the only way to get him to do this was to play a whole new character. He plays Jamie Foxx. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, we don't really have the same nostalgic uh, energy towards that. So we just no. feel, along with the CG characters in, in The Lizard and the Sandman, where we don't even really see, uh, other than archival footage, they bloody slip in there at some point. We don't really see them in it. We just see CG monsters we half recognize mm-hmm. um, with similar voices. So it's like you can really only relate to or, or have those nostalgic feelings for those two specific yeah. actors. Um, which, But regardless, I still thought the dynamic was really fun, the way they would mm. interact and talk in the apartment. And I thought those scenes were great. Mm. Just like very relaxed, I think it, simply it, covered dialogue. Yeah. I, I, I think that's probably the best way of sort of summarizing it, though. Um, it is... I think the my semantic of, of the... Um, obviously, the 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 the, the central mo- motion at this point was oh that they sort of seemingly out of nowhere in very short periods of time also come up with the antidotes to all of these villains right, ailments, yeah. um, which is equally interesting because it's sort of like some of them it's like basically they happy in his apartment basically has this box that can just <laughs> fix them, and they they literally say there is a line in the film where it's like oh it basically can make anything. <laughs> okay so movie over that's convenient right? they have that yeah yeah, yeah look well, i didn't uh, there was a few moments like that because the other one of course is when the nano suit like doc Ock gets nano suit onto his like one of his mechanical arms and then all of a sudden peter just like hacks him yeah and that's how he defeats him but to that point i don't mind that because much like you look at um infinity war there's the moment when they they all go and um to Wakanda. And I think it's Shiri has that line like, oh, why didn't you think to just do this and this and this? 
and um, Mark Ruffalo is like, oh, because we didn't think of it. In this, in the sense that this universe is constantly evolving techno- technology. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's silly to have like a, a, a box in the back room that just solves problems. But it's like in regards to the whole like, oh, they just sort of, they're so technologically advanced, they're fixing a lot of these issues from previous films within hours. I didn't really mind that. And I think I think it sort of speaks to the fun side of, oh, well, look where we are now. Like, Doc Ock is comparatively useless in this. It's a very Batman thing, actually. Yeah. To just, like, hack the technology so they can't be evil anymore. Um, so I didn't mind. Because, again, it's like you watch rewatch Spider-Man 2. There's no scene where he, like, sits... He's like, hey, Doc Ock, let's sit in this room and, and fix you. Like, that scene doesn't exist. So it's like they mm. wouldn't have had the opportunity to sit down and fix it. So... Um, that's what I like about this scene a lot. Fair enough. Um, and the fact that it doesn't go well. They only fix Otto, but everyone else, of course, um, rebels you know, yes. quick enough. Um, which, that's a great... I don't know why he thought bringing five people into one room was a great <laughs> idea. That's my, that, that was one of my things. That, that's a, it's like, risky. It's a little bit of a contrivance <laughs> thing, too. It's like, okay, they're all on board to get, quote, fixed. Why yep. do all five of them have to like leave at one they're in these cells they're not going anywhere yeah they can just do one at a time, time. <laughs> oh well you know what mate you can no you could argue maybe no because if he like takes doc ock and like all right we're gonna cure you so they, they go away and then he comes back four hours later all right he's cured we sent him home the other four villains are like well did you actually or did you just like no, put him doc, in the back alley and doc shoot ock him could have come back and helped i guess so i guess so because he, Look, it is especially funny. in the latter stages of the film, what does he do? He helps them. Yeah. That is funny. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I mean, this is the problem, though, is like, it's messy and you can pick stuff like that apart, but it's like, again, this film wouldn't exist in the way it does if they couldn't do things like that. Of just, let's get all the villains in one room and fan service and, and please the audience. Hmm. Like, you can't write around it. that stuff because I, then that kind of destroys what the purpose of the film is in the first place. Because they've, they've committed to steering away from, the, like, the, the Michael McKean and Michael Mando villains or the Jake Gyllenhaal villains from the previous films. That, that whole arc, they've just steered away from it. Yeah. So it's like, all right, let's just go heads deep into this fan service movie. And that That's the best way to just get them in a room. That's what it should be called. <laughs> a Spider-Man fan service. A fan service film. <laughs> um, no, that's fair. Um, so obviously, yeah, like then this leads to a pretty awesome fight. Not gonna lie, yeah. with um, um, yeah, with Goblin turning and back into that that uh, the Goblin ego. Yeah. Norman's uh, on ego. sabbatical, yeah. honey. Which yes, definitely. <laughs> this is this is Defoe steals it and has a really amazing, quite brutal fight fighting scene. Yeah. Um, but then it, it then it gets to this point where it gets to like sort of the end of it, and he's like like Spider Man's heavily wounded, and May just decides to pick up a pipe, and then gets yeeted by the glider, and it's this <laughs> weird moment that it's like, and it turns into this weirdly elongated scene that I thought was like awesome because I originally thought it was going for like a shock kill, like yeah. May was like, fine, like oh she's and dead, then yeah. she's just dead out of nowhere, and then she gets up. And sort of dangles just around. dangles a little bit and then just decides, okay, I need to say my Uncle Ben line before I die. This is me dying. I'm <laughs> dead. It's true. It's a really weird beat. Because yeah. I remember saying at the time, like, wow, this is a really long scene. And like, 
there is an element of it that is emotional because Tom Holland's you know, acting his heart out, and and we've never actually seen an Aunt May die before on the screen. No, you know, I won't spoil some of the other mediums that I've that I've sort of explored in the Spider-Man ethos, but in terms of the films, this is the first time we've seen that, and that is hard hitting from that standpoint. But you're right; it's like half the reason the scene is so long is because she's prancing around. And they're adding these extra beats for no reason. Yeah, it's almost like, do you want to, like... I'm okay with killing her off in this scene and giving her Uncle Ben line, but then why does she have the five minutes of, yeah, I'm totally fine. That's okay. Let's just let's just go and get to the hospital. Oh, wait, no, I'm actually not okay. <laughs> I'm actually going to start dying. Because it's like, you know, you, watch, you go back to the Raimi death, and it's like, he gets stabbed, he bleeds out, he says his line, dies. That's yeah. it. And then all the other, the follow-up, the revenge follow-up happens. And it's like, I know the point is... She literally just needs to say that line just to have That's the timeline yeah. continuity. Even just a, you know, like, oh, like, don't... What, what's the word? Like, obviously, she gave that advice yeah. of, like, you know, there's still good in you, I guess, or, like, don't don't, don't turn bad because of this. Like, that's yeah. all she needed to, to do. And to have those extra beats of her getting up and, and... It's a fake out. It's a fake, like, live out. Like, can we, like, acknowledge <laughs> the fact that a glider came piercing through destroyed everything around her and yeah. then a grenade got dropped yeah blew I up forgot about the grenade, and yeah. then she gets up after that that's the thing and then decides it's very weird yeah considering no, uncle strange. ben was undone by a knife <laughs> like <laughs> i didn't realize aunt may was like part superhuman jesus <laughs> it's like come on it's a very weirdly paced scene yeah you're right they easily could have like you know they have the impact of the glide which is the impact you see and you're like oh she's dead yeah, yeah, you could get it. I, I, yeah. I made a, I made an audible noise in the cinema. Yeah. I went, oh, that's really effective because it's like the glider. It makes sense. There's a lot of poetry in that, and yeah, it's but, the sort of goblin getting his revenge on a, a Spider Man. Yeah, so and you can still you can still get that moment where she's on the floor and like that kind of like that last like like that last breath, get it in, yeah. and then and then like pass away. But she has to like get up and like make jokes and yeah. like why. That's the thing. that And that really, if anything, sums up to me how little we actually spent time with her in the first two films. And people forget that because they were too busy trying to make all the quips and stuff. They're like, oh, we really didn't give her too much of a personality. She's just kind of a nice, happy person. Who's, you know, I, I can remember more about the Aunt May depiction in the first, you know, in the Raimi yeah, Spider-Man. Of course. Of course, she's excellent in those films. And it's like, that's the thing. It's like that's what speaks volumes to me because obviously they, they chose to take, like I said, the scar, the stark mental role. Yeah. So he took up a lot of screen time that probably could have gone to Aunt May and give her a bit more character that they felt like that to elongate her presence in this one, just to enable the second half of the film. Holland's now seeing red. He's got the red miss for red, you know, for, yep. for green goblin and, and is wanting to kill, you know, which obviously leads to the introduction of the other two Spider-Men. There you go. Do you know what, uh, you know what happened when the Green Goblin's bomb went off? What? It went tick, tick, boom. Yeah, it did. So Is Andrew that... Garfield... <laughs> rocks up in another very, very strange sequence where Ned's opening portals because he's got Strange's right. ring. And... See, I didn't I didn't mind that. As in, the actual reveal itself I thought was pretty ingenious. That be, Like the slow realisation of the entire theatre being like, that doesn't look like, like Tom Holland's suit. And then... I, I love that whole moment. Yeah. But then they literally just go, let's try it again. And I'm there like, this is too silly. Yeah. It would just be like the next couldn't, reveal. Couldn't they just 
do it a third time and then all three of them would just be in the same place. <laughs> they just kept doing it and more Spider-Man stuff. And then they, they say, oh, well, Ned's not adept, but he's adept enough to do it twice correctly, but exactly, three times, yeah. no, sorry. <laughs> Can't do that. I just, when he did, went to do it the second, it's like, this isn't it, is it? Oh, oh it's Tobey Maguire. <laughs> and the way Toby enters too, is all, he's just like kind of confused, like he's walked onto the step. Like he's like... <laughs> no one can see Zeke. Zeke's Watch moving around and pointing. Yeah. I just walked out of this portal thing. Oh, it's it closed. Oh, we must be in a multiverse. <laughs> and that's it. I love that. When they're like... And of course, it leads back to that, that callback scene where it's... You know, they, they actually do have a really good follow-up scene from it when they're both hanging on like the clock tower and like Ned and, and MJ go down to like... They're talking to Peter, to Tom Holland. This is going to get confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I gonna... think, look, look, I... That scene wasn't as effective to me as I think it should have been because that was, you know, the it's the three Spider-Men finally together again mm. and, you know, talking about responsibility, what Uncle Ben said and then the loss that they've had and the loss that uh, that Tom Holland's now experiencing. It didn't work for me as well as it should have and I think mm. part of it's the, the weird coverage. Like, they kept not showing them in the same frames mm. i know that might be a covid thing that might be a secrecy thing yeah. obviously this was the biggest and it's i will say it thing probably yeah and i'll say it before i forget it like more than the force awakens more than you know we mentioned the hobbit earlier more than any of these other properties with returning legacy characters i think this was the biggest i think this felt the most special always because we knew luke skywalker would return in the new trilogy we knew it it was confirmed he was in the cast list we just didn't know to what extent and with these two, with Andrew Guff and, and Tobey Maguire, there was still, even to the very end, there was still that tiny little tinge of doubt that, well, they haven't said it mm. yet. It's not 100% real yet until it's you're in the theatre and you're seeing it before your eyes. So I think that, that alone was such a special moment uh, for you know when you consider all of those aspects. I will consider that a very special moment in cinema, and I wouldn't put it on my 1,100 films to watch list. But to me, that's irrelevant in terms of like the surprise of seeing a legacy character return and it being more or less an authentic surprise because there was still that tinge of doubt even to the very last second. Yeah. Um, but back to that scene, you're right, the secrecy of it, weird coverage throughout. I just, I, I noticed that, you know, I noticed it was very strange angles. They weren't framed together a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might have been part of it, um, why that scene didn't speak to me too much because it was an emotional mm-hmm. scene. At least it should have been. Yeah, I, I think it, it was not the most effective. I think funny thing is, it, it once again, I'm probably going to point this out, I, I think that this was really good that it gave Andrew Garfield um, a lot more uh, sort of emotional beats and screen time. Yeah, um, and closure def- in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I really think, you know, it's um, we'll probably when we get towards the end of this sort of review, start to ask the question, will we see either of these other Spider-Men again? Mm. Um, but... I definitely think that there is a lot of like the, what he gives in that scene is very strong. Um, he definitely looks like he did just get off the set of Tick Tick Boom the way he <laughs> just looks. Um, they can get away with it because he's an older Spider-Man. Yeah, they're older. They've lived longer lives. They're more wise. So you can get away with that. They look um, different. I like that Toby looks noticeably older. I yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and especially with obviously they do like de aging on Doc Ock and and yeah. Defoe's characters. So um, I definitely think that it's really nice and then obviously in the final fight like he does end up saving mj and that's obviously the parallels to gwen so that's 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 really nifty and really awesome great continuity yeah 
their best scene together is when they're just riffing with each other. Ab- absolutely. That, that's the best, uh, some of the best stuff in the whole movie. Yeah. And what I loved about it specifically is, maybe this is why I wasn't a huge fan of the emotional stuff. Because you could argue that like, oh, well, Peter's just having other versions of himself tell him to be, like, to act better. Mm-hmm. Like, he hasn't gone for that. He goes for it when he finds Green Goblin later, but I can, I can see people being sort of narcissistic about that beat. But when they're riffing, when they're having fun, it's like, these are three people who have shared, I guess, lost, shared trauma, but shared experiences as being heroes and fighting villains and saving people and swinging around and all these things that nobody else in their universe understands. Mm-hmm. So it was cool to have three characters just, like, have that immediate relation to yeah. each other and talk about who, were, who which villains did you like fighting? Why is your web shooting different to my web shooting? Like, I think that was a lot of it's very, like, Reddit, Fred Page stuff. But I liked it because I actually think the three of them played off each other really, really well. Yeah, and you can honestly see they were some of the scenes where it felt like particularly Toby wanted to be there because all he had to do was stand around and talk. <laughs> felt. He's stretching his back. Yeah. It's a back stretch, yeah. Like, it's like, he's like, man, I'm so done with this. Like, this is funny just talking about. Yeah. And like Garfield's like the self-awareness of how kind of average his villains were. It's like, I'm lame compared to you guys. <laughs> the fighting in space. And it really goes to show even like the progression of where we've gotten in the last 20 years with superhero films. How we went from yeah. all based in one city with like hokey villains. Let's be real. It's like, you know, like they have the clunkiness. Like, although ironically, it's like the Green Goblin and Doc Ock are easily like the two they get the most screen time and they definitely, especially getting the most labor of love as yep. their villains are also probably two of the most simple and so easily undone by the Holland. Um, well, definitely Doc Ock, how quick it is for Holland to just beat Doc Ock. Hack his yeah, yeah. tentacles. Like, <laughs> it shows you like that sort of progression, a technological curve. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love those Suddenly scenes. Suddenly harnessing the sun in the palm of your hand is kind of <laughs> basic. It's very basic, yeah. Basic bitch stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I I just love that. I love their immediate connection. But and the guy with multiple personality disorders is kind of lame yeah. compared. To- <laughs> <laughs> but what's cool is that this now it trans it transcends that debate of, I think people are going to talk about them as like who was the best Spidey, who was the best Peter, who was the what were the best films. I think I mean that conversation is going to start changing because now that they've all played these roles as part of a collective, mm. I think. You know, it's that whole thing of like, oh, well, which one's better? But it's like, well, now they've all been in the same film and talked to each other. And, you know, you have you Toby Maguire's like, oh, but, you know, you're not lame. You're amazing. You, you know, you're amazing. You're great. So that little <laughs> friendship support network. I think that authentically changes the debate that people are going to have now. There's still who's the best of the three of them. Mm-hmm. But I think there's now new layers to it because it's like, well, they've all very publicly have come together and, and did their own thing yeah. together. So I think that's cool that it does that. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I think... I will say one thing is when they were all fighting together, like the three of them, I wish there was a bit more distinction for who was who. and not. I wish it wasn't at night. Like, yeah, I think that's yeah, a big, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll put it at sundown or, or sunrise because that, that darkness, I know it's a visual effect trick of being like, it makes it easier with visual effects. It's probably hiding visual effects stuff. Yeah. But it's like, it's too difficult. It's dizzying sometimes because you have to rely solely on voices and they all actually have obviously, and deliberately obviously do, but have relatively similar voice. They've not got very distinct voices in close proximity. Yeah. Sure. If they're standing around and riffing, you can tell. 
but when everything else is going yeah the they're not totally look, distinct voices you know? yeah well they're yeah. all meant to, they're all peter parker exactly they're all cast <laughs> to play the same character yes you know? And I think that that was another little clever workaround that things like Spider-Verse did was they made it six very distinct Spider-Men. Well, they could because that was the basis of they were creating yeah. all those characters. Well, they were at least casting all those characters from scratch and it's animation as well. So yeah. your voices have to be very distinct. Yeah. But you're right here. They're kind of stuck with what they've already established. Yeah. Um, all three of them. Which and, meant and, that it would have been nice to see three even maybe distinct suits. Well, they, they were... That's it. You want to see them wear the suits they wore in their respective films. Yeah. So you're kind of stuck. The only thing they could have done, and I don't think they did this, was the actual way they would swing and fight. I It didn't feel distinctive enough. I feel like the way that Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man swings around in his films is so different. Mm-hmm. Immensely different from how Toby swings in his films. One is way more stiff than the other. One is way more flexible than the other. So the movements are different paces. But when I was watching this film... They all kind of just did the same thing. Mm. They all kind of moved in the same progression, and it was I it was agree. part. Fighting it was, style is completely different. They're yeah. three different. Inherently, they are three of the same, but also three completely different people. That's yeah. the whole point of multiverses, really. Yeah, I was disappointed by that. It was like they kind of just all look like they're moving at the same pace. Well, the CGI and, guys just running around, aren't they? Really, they just. Well, that it's like well, that's the CGI then, isn't it? It's like why can't they be distinctive? Why can't they look more like they did in the their respective films? Because it didn't look like that way to me. And I think that that's where it comes back to what we're talking about. It's like they have these weird sort of continuity respects in one aspect, but then not in others. Because, like you said, if they're all just three CGI models, then you would animate all three of them differently, like and uniquely, and so you can clearly tell distinct patterns between all three. But instead, it just ends up being kind of kind of dizzying and confusing because you don't really know who's with who unless they take their, their right their tops mask off, which they're, they're they tops do. off wow they're, they're oh, my, top, oh my goodness they're mask, yeah. <laughs> words uh yeah look I, I i that's a minor complaint but it's like i feel like they could have utilized their distinctive movements to their respective films better um but it, you know it is what it is it's for the bunny shot you want all three of them in the same shot and doing mm-hmm. the same moves and that whole jazz but um, I mean, this transitions well. Let's talk about the ending, sort of the decision that's made at the end, or, or, or it's a decision is a sacrifice, really, um, and how that plays out. Because I mean, you and I have very distinct feelings on the ending. Mm-hmm. I loved the ending to this film, immaculately, and and that's partly me trying to ignore the semantics of what it means. I know you and, and a lot of the people that we went with were very caught off guy by what this means. This decision that Peter has to make at the end that all right, now let's do the spell that no one remembers who Peter Parker is. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just that he's Spider-Man, but him, period. Yeah, which means he goes it- Ghost Protocol. <laughs> so yes. not only do all the villains and the other Spider-Men, I guess, forget about, so they, they all go away. Mm. Um, he basically starts at the point in which the spider bites him. Yes, which is very intentional to the sense, the, the sense that this film is very clearly ending on a note that's like, we are now going in this adult Spider-Man iconography that a lot of Spider-Man fans have been hoping and wishing for. There's no mentor anymore with Tony Stark and you know, Stephen Strange and all of these things. It's very much a New York with a Spider-Man who no one knows is Spider-Man. We see that with a different suit. We see that when they're obviously fighting on the Statue of Liberty and the shield and the scaffolding all falls apart. And I thought that was pretty ingenious to have that lingering shot of the Statue of Liberty just being the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And it's like they've sort of crumbled all the Avengers iconography out of it. And it's like that's like your visual representation of New York, Spider-Man, it's as simple as that. And mm-hmm. that's what the next film's going to be. 
I loved all of that setup and the fact that it's a real consequence that, you know, his friend's gone into college, but now it's like, they don't know who he is. That is a really effective scene, in my opinion, him trying to talk to MJ and she just, they both have this sort of recognition, but Peter can't quite make the step yeah, forward and MJ's... Chemist- there's chemistry there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It That's a great scene. Mm-hmm. And it's like to end the film on that note, I think is really clever. But... I understand, yeah, the semantics of what does that mean for the villains who have now all been reformed to be sent back into, I guess, the moment they would have died. Because this is the thing I said to you as well. I'm surprised they didn't show any of that. Yeah, that's a big, that was a big head scratcher to me. And what I, I can only tie that to is the fact that they have this blatant openness to the fact that they kind of are open to bringing them back in for, you know, like other films or mm. other reasons um especially with conf- i mean it's confirmed to a degree when you've got the multiverse of madness trailer that precedes this um screening it's the last thing you see it's the mm. post-credit scene post-credit yeah. trailer now um, yeah it's just the trailer um and that's the only reason because it, it almost feels like yeah look this film could 100 percent be the last time we see garfield and toby Maguire, but They've, the reason they don't put those post-credit montage sequences of their lives getting to some sense of normality in their own respective timelines is because what if we can bring them back one more mm-hmm. time just in case? Well, Let's keep that in the quiver. Yeah, well, my... <laughs> the quiver, that's a very good Hawkeye reference right there for yeah. you. <laughs> He's also well, lived. Yeah, there you go. But my, my, my thinking was more... And it's like I said, the other two um, Homecoming and Far From Home films open the prologue sort of... It's not in media res, but the the first thing you see is the villains mm-hmm. and like the establishment of the villains, and then it has the Marvel Columbia logos, and then it goes into Spider Man. Um, but this film doesn't do that; it jumps straight into the action for where the second one left off. And it's like, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be clever if to show Doc Ock in that moment, and then have him like you? We see him teleport, and then maybe we see another villain or two teleport, or that's what we see, and then you cut to the Marvel logo because at least that gives us some visual clues as to where they're going to be sent back to. Yeah. And now we're just sort of forced to think, well, they they just send back to him already drowning mm. or Green Goblin already, like, impaled. Like, I get... See, I don't mind... I don't care about the semantics because you're probably right. They left it open so that they can rewrite it and make more films. You're probably right on that. Um, but for me, I also just imagine... Well, even if it was just a simple thing as, like, showing a uh, a sequence where, like, Otto is is like having like dinner with Peter, like Toby Maguire's right, Peter and yeah. stuff like that. Like some with like a Kirsten Dunst cameo too. Like like something that really just I'm shocked ties in the film. Yeah. that that's it. They're done, you know? Because it's like some finality. To, the reality to it. is what happens when Otto goes back to his point, because at that point Harry's not died. But Norman yeah. has. Yeah. So the reality what happens when Norman goes back, but Harry because essentially, especially particularly the Raimi films, by sending Goblin back fixed, the Raimi films don't happen. Right. Otto never, never does any. Like, and I think that that's my problem. It's like the reality is, particularly in the Raimi films, the event of Norman's death leads to the chain reaction of the second and the third film. Yeah, yeah. They are actually all interlinked with each other. They actually are a rounded trilogy, <laughs> whereas this is. Two films that are at least one after the other that kind of have continuity. But this one is mostly just there for the fanfare side that has a very loose sort of we need to get him to his next trilogy, basically. This mm. no men- this mentorless Spider-Man. Yes. Which, if, you know, we tie it into the Hardy post credit scene, 
is probably where that 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 symbiote link's coming in. Yeah, yeah, I guess they're definitely burning to that. It's that's still weird. I still don't understand how they're going to connect that if it is going to be Tom Hardy who's was sent to the universe in the end of Venom 2, which I don't give a crap about, but I I saw that scene on YouTube. But then in this post credit scene, he just gets sent back to his own universe, so it's just part of a symbiote. So look, uh, different I was Eddie Brock. Up I don't know. In a very, actually, a very sort of well-rounded like, uh, so I was very adverse to the ending. I got some of it explained by you know a friend of the show Liam, and he actually was pretty you know on on the ball with it. But the point that he made, which I actually agree with, what this is, is that he's totally like so like we're going to have two Spider Men running concurrently. I think right. We're going to have Garfield with Hardy over in that Venom Spider-Man world. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that and then this new symbiote, symbiote is going to Tom find Holland, Holland okay. and then it's going to find what, whoever the Eddie Brock in the MCU is. That actually makes a lot of sense because the Venom, that the uh, the Tom Hardy Venom is a Venom that, ha- that hasn't met Spider-Man. Obviously, the, there's a weird thing where he like, is attracted to him on the TV in that post credit scene. But the Venom in the Spider-Man universe needs to attach to Spider-Man first. Mm-hmm. And then that's how Venom gets his swinging powers is because he, he knows Peter is Spider-Man and, um, I guess, encumbers him, mm-hmm. the goo or whatever. Like that, he Venom's origin story is reliant on Peter finding the symbiote. So, yeah, so, that's so what that the, makes sense. That's what the drop's there for. It, yeah. We're going to get two co-current running, Sony run one, and MCU run one, yeah. and prepare to get more confused, everyone. That's going to get really confusing because they'll they'll be completely isolated. I don't think we'll see Garfield in an MCU film again. But this was the way of Sony being mm, like with their weird with their weird sort of agreement, if you will, way of bringing a Spider Man back that is going to get butts in seats. Mm. Because okay. this is the this is the way of once again boosting that stock in that Garf because Garfield is I think still open to playing it. Toby's oh, done. I think a thousand percent. Toby's done. We're not seeing any more Toby, which is why it would have really co- probably would have benefited to having some form of final. Like he does, he does. His talk- fake out death is just ridiculous. It is silly because I had read that he dies in this film. Yeah, and then it was just a, I was a fake out. Okay, I read that Ned died as well. That didn't happen. The most laughable whatever. fake out too. He gets stabbed. He goes uh uh. No, it's alright. I've been stabbed before. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a, a lot of weird beats like that. What Very is the weird. other... This this film... As much as I love The Last Jedi, it has a, a lot of beats like that. But there's a few extra beats in there for no reason. Like, just, just let the story play out. Just let it play out. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I think... Like, I, I still think the ending's fantastic for what it invokes, for the consequences it represents... Um, and the fact that yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get a very different kind of Tom Holland Spider-Man in the future that's not encumbered with Avengers iconography or mentors that people were so upset about. He's very much on his own, which I think's great. Mm. But yeah, Zeke, what is your highlight scene for oh, Spider-Man? It's the no boys, Way Home? it's the boys riffing. It's got to be the boys riffing. Yeah, I I had that too, but then I also wanted to give a shout out to the very opening when Peter and MJ sneaking through the the window, and you have like a collection of oneers as they kind of walk in and out of the hallways and they find out that he's on the news. I, I thought that was a really great scene. It's just a clever little camera energy thing yeah. they're doing. But the boys riffing is oh, it's awesome. Yeah, It's so it's great good. Fun. No worries. Well, Spider-Man No Way Home is currently out in cinemas near you. Mm. And I can just confirm that's probably everywhere in the world. <laughs> so Yeah, million cinemas around the world. Look at there that. You go. Speaking of cinemas around the world, Jake, what's new yeah. to cinemas in Australia this week? 
Yeah, well, there's a bunch. I will start with streaming because oh. I mean, there's a lot coming to streaming too. It's also true. Very exciting. Adam McKay's Don't Look Up hit streaming Netflix this week, so it's very exciting. Go watch it. Coming to stand this week is We'll End Up Together, which is actually the Little White Lies sequel that I saw in theaters, not realizing it was a sequel to a movie. So that experience of me watching it in cinemas and not realizing that these are established characters and me sort of having to catch up with the story and the relationships, I actually really like that experience. And I've actually put it into a script that I've written before, that experience. Spicy. Spicy. I mean, this character is a little younger than in, than in the sequel, but it is what it is. Plus, Inception and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factories. That's all coming to stand. Is that the Johnny Depp one? Uh, Willy Wonka is the original. Okay. So, uh... Oh, it's Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, so... Charlie's a new one, yes. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you got Timothy Chalamet <laughs> doing his thing. Wonka! Very soon. Not sure when, but, but soon. Coming to Disney Plus this week is the animated film Encanto. We mentioned it earlier with the awards discussion. As well as Fight Club, Gone Girl, Birdman, and Alvin and the Chipmunks. All the live-action films. Mm. Uh, so that's exciting, I suppose. Uh, coming to Prime this week, we have Being the Ricardos. This is the Aaron Sorkin film I mentioned earlier. He wrote mm-hmm. and directed this. Quick turnaround from Trial. Yeah, but, uh, just over a year. Yeah, no, it came out last year, so not too long indeed. Sees Javier Bardem and Nicole Kidman play a 1950s Hollywood power couple as they face personal and professional crises that threaten their careers. That sounds good. Yeah, I'm hearing it's all right. Okay. But we'll, we'll jump on it when it goes wide on Prime. Of course, you've got Godzilla vs. Kong, Peter Rabbit, and Grease coming to binge this week. And the Mahersha Ali film Swan Son, which uh, is in theaters. No, sorry. It's already on Apple TV+, Plus, okay. but comes to theaters this week. So if you're impatient, log on now or wait a few days. Uh, but that's also in the awards discussion. And speaking of theaters, we have a bunch of stuff coming, dropping on Boxing Day. Quite a lot. We have Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. We have Lana Wachowski's The Matrix Resurrections, so the fourth Matrix film. Are we excited for that? I don't care too much for it. I saw the trailer. No. Didn't really do it for me. But. Fair enough. i got to watch two and three, and then I might see how I'm feeling with that one. But, um, yeah. And it's also, like, like I mentioned, it's only been directed by Lana Wachowski. Just mm. the one. So, just the one Wachowski. <laughs> that might be all you need. Who knows? We also have Joel Cohen's adaptation of The Tragedy of Macbeth. And The Worst Person in the World, which I mentioned earlier, is getting a lot of awards buzz in the foreign film category. I'm hearing it's great. Uh, and again, that's all unboxing Boxing Day. That's all on Sunday. Busy couple of weeks coming yeah, up. Yeah, indeed. It really is. But there's something that comes out. It's already previewed, mm. but it comes out on Christmas Day. Also getting a lot of Oscar buzz. It is. Quite is. We've mentioned it already on the show. Award buzz. But, Oscar uh, buzz. We don't know yet. It will get Oscar buzz. Let's it will. It definitely will. But Jake, <laughs> what are we watching? Next week in the show, Zeke, we're watching West Side Story. Please. 
Love at first sight strikes when young Tony spots Maria at a high school dance in 1957, New York City. Is it the same New York City that uh, Spider-Man's swinging through? Essentially. Yeah. I guess it's not. It's the 50s, though. Who knows? Uh, Their burgeoning romance helps to fuel the fire between the warring jets and sharks. Two rival gangs vying for control of the streets. There you go. Ah, this little click. You're doing a little click thing. Have you seen the original West Side Story? I have. Cool. Yeah, I saw it... uh, God, I think maybe first year film degree. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I did not I liked catch it, it then. Nice. I liked it. It's a very, um, the, at least the original is very dance. He- it's a dance heavy musical. It does have some numbers in it, but it's sort of from that, f- uh, particularly it's quite prominent fixture in, in sort of cinematic musicals in the 1950s. It's sort of like Singing in the Rain has a very strong yes. dance orientation to it. So... I'm very much looking forward to this. This is probably the most positive reception Spielberg's gotten for a film. In a long time, yeah. In a long time. <laughs> um, obviously, a lot of awards buzz. Um, kind of great, because it's a consummation of his career, which we were talking a bit about on our Jaws episode a couple of weeks ago. So this yes. is kind of really nifty timing. Um, so I take it you have not seen the original. No, um, I'll try and catch that and this one very soon. No dramas. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Steven Spielberg's West Side Story.